Now, let's see if between the United States and Australia, we can give each other a little a little kiss. Come on, Peter. Can you do it? Can you do it? Oh. No, you got to come further <laughs> over. Come on, further over. This way? You come, keep going. Keep going further. You're no good at this. No. There. All right. I hope that you guys will check out our episode. We're much better at talking than we are. Kissing. I don't know if I feel violated or liberated. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There you go. <laughs> you are a pro. <laughs> <laughs> you are listening to the Office Anywhere podcast. I'm your host, Peter Fritz. And on this show, we chat about living on purpose. Sound too fluffy for you? Okay, I'll explain it like this. I've worked in marketing, tech, publishing and design for around 30 years, 20 of them remotely. And as the tagline suggests, well, I like to explore things like fitting work around your life instead of the other way around, becoming a better parent and exploring new horizons that deliver a richer life experience. If that all sounds like your brand of vodka, then subscribe to the show. And if you'd like to know the six steps to living and working on your terms, then download a free copy of my beautiful Work Anywhere trial guide over at officeanywhere.co. If you've listened to my podcast for a while, then you'll know that I used to talk and write a lot about midlife. If you're new here, just go to midlifetribe.com and you'll see what I mean. Well, today you're going to hear from one of the smartest and nicest midlifers I've ever met. She's also responsible for the most enjoyable podcast I've ever done, not as the host, but as the guest on her show, The Experience 50 Podcast for Midlife. And that was back in November 2019. I can't believe how quickly seven months have gone. As she said back then, we're definitely kindred spirits although I think she's technically more savvy than I am after this morning's debacle. So before we kick off, let me tell you a little bit about Mary. She grew up and started her career in Detroit in her adopted hometown of Traverse City, Michigan. Is it Traverse City? Is that how you call it? It is Traverse City. Traverse City. I'm glad I asked. Um, she's still called Mary in the Morning from her past morning radio talk show. She's owned and sold her own businesses, managed and led nonprofits. Served on boards of directors, consulted startup and growing businesses, and generally been the advice doling out front person, the podium and the microphone type, the kind that makes most of us sweaty and uncomfortable. Uh, she's been married twice, divorced once, ditto. Uh, no, hang on, I've been married three times and divorced twice. Yeah, I'm better than you. <laughs> you win. <laughs> uh, she's got one son, born in 86, and a daughter in 2000. I can relate. A uh, big um, time gap between them. Uh, she fearlessly kills any bug or spider she finds in her house. Well, I will kill any bug or spider I find. In, yeah, the, I will kill any bug or spider I find in mine, but not fearlessly. Oh, look at that. Something popped up on my screen. The license for this computer was deleted. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> <laughs> you are a wreck today. Oh, I'm just having wonders after, after another this morning. I can't even talk now. Um, both of her parents died when she was in her early 30s. Sorry to hear that. That must have been a hell of a challenge for you growing up. Um, what am I saying growing up? You're already grown up in your 30s, aren't you? No, I wasn't grown no. up in my 30s. Not till your parents' day. Then you're grown up. Yeah, I suppose. Um, she can drive in reverse better than most. <clears throat> That's definitely a skill. She's a certified small business consultant and midlife mentor. Uh, she's had breast cancer. She's fine now. Thank you. Uh, and she can spot a midlifer a mile away. Every day, she pledges to make somebody else's life suck just a little bit less. Nowadays, she produces her Experience 50 podcast. She mentors midlifers across the globe, writes her blog, provides small business consulting, and helps regular folks start podcasts. 
or she talks them out of it. And she writes an opinion column in her local paper. She enjoys living a block from Lake Michigan. She treasures her empty nest. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. That's a while off for me. And she enjoys her husband. I wonder what enjoys her husband actually means. And how old is he now? He is 51. You're a cradle snatcher, aren't you? I'm 50. Yeah, I'm 57. He's 51. My first husband was 13 years older than me. Ah, You had to reverse the trend and balance it. I married a 70. I mean, he would be 70 right now. He is 70 right now. Okay. Um, So anyway, Mary, thanks for hanging out with me today. And I really apologize for the technical glitches we had before. (laughs) I had Mary running around like an idiot trying to solve something that actually wasn't her fault. It was my fault the whole time. Um, So thanks for hanging out with us today. And welcome at last to the Office Anywhere podcast. Peter, I'm so glad to be here. You and I just, I don't know, were we like in another life? We were brother and sister or something because we just we just get along really well. <laughs> it's true. And we've already had a chance to test the limits of each other's patience this morning. And I'm proud to say that Mary came through with flying colours and was completely unflustered by my gross incompetence. Well, well maybe <sighs> it's just that I didn't let you see it. Oh, that's maybe when you went was? off camera. <laughs> or I'm just a cool cucumber, you know. I reckon I just didn't you went let and you did. See it. I reckon you went and did uh, what you um, told me a little earlier is one of your techniques for dealing with Possibly. challenging situation. Did you run off to the corner and say a rude word five times in a row? Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> uh, listen, Mary. Something I've got to say that I love about you is your straight talking. Tough love. I've seen it in testimonials um, that others have written about you. I see it in the copy that's on your website, and I and I hear it um, in the conversations that you have with people on your podcast. Um, you have a very high functioning bullshit detector, which I relate to and I appreciate, and clearly a lot of other people do. Um, you're very honest and self deprecating, and um, I reckon you've probably had your bullshit detector since you were maybe five. Um, because you wield it with such skill. Um, (laughs) Now, like any other 52-year-old, I've worked with and spoken to thousands of people over the years. And all that time, though, I could probably count on one of my sausage fingers hands the people that I felt instantly comfortable with. It is pretty rare. Um, It's rare that you meet somebody and immediately you feel like you can trust them and that you've known them for years. And you are one of those people. You are one of the sausages on my finger. <laughs> that is the most disgusting thing anyone has ever said to me. <laughs> and you can't unsee that. Um, no, no. So let's explain what we're doing here today. Mary and I both love Tim Ferriss. Uh, we've read his books. Um, we love his deeply analytical, bullshit-free approach to philosophy and life hacking. And um, I've got two of his monster-sized books here, one of which will be uh, one of which will be the subject of our questioning today or will uh, drive some of our questions today to each other. Um, the thing is, <clears throat> Mary came up with this very clever idea a few weeks ago, um, and we're going to test it out today. As a pair of 50-plus self-employed entrepreneurial podcasters, ruckus makers, and, you know, live while you're alive believers, she said, let's interview each other. And while we're at it, let's use Tim Ferriss's 11 questions, or at least some of the 11 questions from his book, Tribe of Mentors, which is this malaka here. If you listen to the podcast, I'm holding up the book. Um, 
Uh, so I said, bloody brilliant, let's do it. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to ask each other anything that we want. And I've got a whole list of questions here that I want to ask Mary, but if we, if I ask all of them, we'll probably be here forever. Um, this might actually be the first podcast episode where we go off for toilet breaks live. I don't know. We'll see how we go. <laughs> um, so why don't we begin and I will ask you a question that is not from Tim's list, but I think it's one that's worth asking. And then we'll move on from there and we can decide how we go from there. What do you reckon? We'll just pretend we're in the well, same room drinking. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a great idea. And what I really like about the idea of us doing this on your show is that I realize when I am interviewed on other shows, I tell that host's listeners things about myself that I've never told my listeners because nobody <laughs> asks me questions on my show. Yeah, good So point. I think this is a really nice opportunity for your listeners to actually learn more about you at the same time because unless someone asks, you never learn. No, that's right. And even though we both like talking about ourselves, as probably any podcaster does, it's it's true. We don't get the benefit of somebody asking insightful, well-researched questions about us. We just ramble. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so this will be a treat for both of us. Okay. All right, well, why don't we start with this one? Um I reckon the common characteristic of every great rebel entrepreneur ruckus maker, as Seth Godin calls them, is this deep-seated desire to work and live on their terms. Um, now, I know that you share that uh, feeling as well. Um, so who or what was it that sparked that in you? Um, was it a, a person? Was it an event um, or something else? How did that begin for you? It was absolutely that I am a product of my parents' household. Neither of my parents ever earned a paycheck, ever. And oh. yet both were very, very full-time, 24-7 entrepreneurial types. So my, you'll be very interested in this, as will your audience. Going back to, you know, 1965, my father worked at home. Wow. <laughs> you just don't hear that. So no. right inside our front door... You went in the foyer to the left was my dad's office, and he ran a very successful real estate business out of that office. He was way ahead of his time. He had um, he started temporary luxury housing for worldwide executives. So we were in Detroit. <laughs> And when Ford would need to bring in a German designer who was going to be there for six months or three months or a year, instead of having to deal with buying them a house for a short period of time, my father had these beautiful townhomes throughout this lovely suburb where we lived. And everything was there from the toilet paper to the sheets to the, you know, Mm. knives and spoons, beautifully appointed, and that was his business. So what was interesting is that my mother worked as a contractor, as a travel agent, and so every morning she would, in her suit and with her little briefcase, march down the driveway and drive off to work, and they would see my father in his bathrobe going out to get the newspaper at 11 o'clock in the morning. And the neighbors would say, oh, that poor Sharon Keys. 
married to that bum. bum of a man. And so my parents just, they had this very different lifestyle of quality of life was everything. Mm. And neither of them ever had a boss to complain about. Huh. And it was all on them. Every decision that they made was around the calendar of their businesses. You know, when can I do this? And I, so you can imagine dealing with a boss. For me, I had mm. I had no model of I have to be there at eight o'clock. Mm. Mm. So how did that manifest then when you did st- have, you spent time in the workforce as a salaried employee. So how did that go for you in the early days? <laughs> well, interestingly, uh, and, and I'm very, very fortunate in this, that when I graduated from high school, my parents, it, it, I was not identified as a college girl because I didn't have a clear sense of what I wanted to do with my life. Mm -hmm. So my parents gave me 25% interest in a new business that they were starting, which was a a travel agency. And I owned a quarter of it. And my mom and I hired, you know, within a couple of years, we had a staff of 12. We were doing two and a half million dollars a year. Mm. And then I figured out, because I still, I was a pretty smart cookie, but what I didn't understand as I slaved away to build this damn business is that my parents had done it to be a tax write-off for all the money dad was making. (laughs) And they wanted to travel and they could do it through this travel agency Uh and write off everything they lost. (laughs) So I owned 25% of a negative. (laughs) I got to travel a lot and learn to manage people. And so that was great. And I got to be like second in command, but I was the manager. I was the boss and I had 50 year old women answering to me. How old were you then? Oh, like 20. Okay. (laughs) Fresh out of high school. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I learned to be the boss. So what I learned in that situation was to behave in a way that would earn the respect from people who were not going to give it to me because of my credentials Mm -hmm. or my experience. Yep. So I, that has certainly, I mean, you know, you fast forward to, I was given a morning talk radio show with zero experience. How'd you do that? And I could do, I could do anything I wanted. I literally got a phone call. It was a voicemail message saying, hi, Mary, in a a great radio voice, a man Mm -hmm. saying, hi, Mary, this is Charlie Ferguson. I have an opportunity for you, but it will require that you get naked in front of hundreds of thousands of people Monday (laughs) through Friday, four hours a day. (laughs) What a great intro. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had seen me do public speaking. I had done some voice work kind of material for them. Yeah. And <laughs> never in a million years saw myself as a radio personality. And I walked in that broadcast house and it was filled with, I mean, people washing floors who had been speaking into their hairbrush since they were 12, <laughs> hoping to have anything to do with radio. Yeah. And I just walked in 
not knowing anything Shit. and was had the I was it was the highest paying job in the house. Wow. And yeah. So what was and it that I, that that made this happen? What attracted him to and had such faith in you so quickly? I mean, you said that you'd done speaking gigs and stuff, which he'd obviously seen. It was because they were trying to position themselves as a radio station for women. And so the other people who were speaking or who were on the format were like Dr. Laura and, oh gosh, I can't even, I can't even, well, Dave Ramsey was one of them. But anyway, Mm -hmm. they wanted to really connect with a female audience. Mm -hmm. And so... I, at the time, owned Marigold Women in Business, which was a training and event company for women. Mm-hmm. And they were one of my sponsors. They let me record. Like I, I just had this beautiful arrangement with them where they didn't pay me, I didn't pay them, but I went in one day every six months and recorded like a hundred 32nd to 62nd tips for working women kind of thing. Okay. Yep. And I did it on their behalf, but I got to plug Marigold. And so I guess there was a great response to those. Mm -hmm. And based on that, they gave me a show. It was awesome. It was really fun. It was a lot of fun. That's so cool. So how long did you do that for? I did that for five years. Mm -hmm. And it's just... Everything I have done in my career, I felt really not terribly prepared for. Yeah, I just, I think because of that first experience, I, of working for my parents, I just think I port, other people see that I believe I have a space at that table. Mm -hmm. And if I believe it, they believe it. Yeah. Yeah, act as if you know what you're doing and people yeah. fall in line. Yeah. I and relate so well to that. to work with me, yep. you know? So it's it's all about the person. And, and now, I mean, this was certainly not anything that the corporate world subscribed to back in the 80s. But now we all know hire the person and teach them what you need them to do. Yeah, so true. So true. Gee, I experienced a lot I of had that. A, I had a work ethic that, you know, whew. Maniac. Total maniac. Total maniac. And I, I'm sure you were the same way back when you were, once you were saved from the banking job, mm. right? Yeah, I was. Look, I was uh, super ambitious from a very young age. And, um, you know, I would always bite off more than I could chew. And I was pretty good too at acting like I knew what I was doing. And people would trust me and then I would figure out what I needed to know so that I actually did know what I was doing. And I did that from a very young age, um, even as a kid yeah. out in the golf course, finding golf balls and then negotiating with golfers and the pro shop to buy all the balls that I was finding, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. But I remember when I started um, uh, in the magazine industry, I went on a safari for four days in the desert as a 16-year-old, unlicensed, riding a dirt bike out in the middle of nowhere, wrote a story about it. My dad said, it was my dad that urged me, he said, why don't you write a story about it and send to that magazine you read all the time? nah, they're not going to publish my thing. He said, just try it. You never know. I did and they did and I did a couple more and then um, the magazine was sold to a large conglomerate um, that published a national newspaper and 15 other magazines. So I thought, out of my league now, no chance. Um, But Dad, who's always been super supportive, said, 
why don't you try it again, son? See what happens. You never know. And then I was in the banking job. And um, they published the next story, was spotted by an art director, said I had talent, wanted me to work for him. I didn't want to work for him because it seemed too scary going from secure banking to this guy who lived in a fancy house with a pink marble garage and a black Ferrari and no clear idea of what I was going to do. But he was friends with the managing editor of the whole magazine publishing group and set up a meeting with him. He asked me to take a roll of film and shoot 36 publishable shots. I went and did my very best, came back to his house and he sat down at his coffee table and he went through the photos and he went, nah, nah, that's shit. No, 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 that's not bad. I thought, I said, I won't it. He said, all right, how much is the bank paying you? And I said, oh, 150 bucks a week, whatever it was. He said, all right, I'll give you 200. You start on Monday. <laughs> so I went to the big smoke, an hour and a half, two hours from home, started work and straight away, busy environment, typical publishing environment. Uh, one of the editors walks up, thrusts some rolls of film in my hand and says, here, print these off, process these and print them. Thought, what the hell? I've never processed or printed film before. What the hell do I do? <laughs> some old guy who'd been there for years came up to me and he sort of whispered to me, I said, don't let him know that you don't know how to do this. Come in the dark room, I'll show you what you have to do. And that's how I, that's how everything worked for me. You know, it was just act like you can do it and then figure out as quickly as you can or find someone to help you figure out as quickly as you can how the hell to do it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I do think that so many people get incredible opportunities who don't deserve it. <laughs> and, so and, true. and some people, I mean, it's also why you find just complete morons in some jobs is because they mm. had the balls to ask for the job. Yeah, true. Yeah, it's you true. Know, I mean, it works both ways. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I have been very fortunate, very, very fortunate in being in the right place at the right time, having the, you know, gumption to say, you know, hey, how about me? I mean, mm. when I when I left working for my parents, which, you know, thank God I did, but it took me eight years to get mm-hmm. out of there. And that's because my mom was an alcoholic and it was just I couldn't she was drinking all day long and right. I couldn't be the, you know, that required a whole janitor skill set to right. clean her act up and I wasn't going to do it. So I went to work for a chamber of commerce in the Detroit area. I was 26 years old and I, I was only there for, you know, like a couple of months acting as their event coordinator when the executive director decided she couldn't do it anymore. And I was like, oh, I could do that. I could be the executive director of the Chamber of Commerce. Of course you could. (laughs) And I got it. (laughs) And I got it. You know, I mean, it was uh, unheard of. Yeah. I I think I was like the youngest female executive director, which would now be a president's position. And uh, yeah. I think it's almost a need in people to have someone stick their hand up and say, I can take this weight off your shoulders and the indecision. I'm the one for the job. So now you're okay. You don't have to make a decision now. I've just made it for you. It's easy. If I screw up, well, then you've got someone to blame. But at least you don't have to, you know, vacillate over who it's going to be now. I've already told you. Done. Yeah. Yeah. I think think a lot of us just need direction. We need someone to say, I'll do it. I'll do a great job. Oh, good. (laughs) Good. And if you screw up, I can blame you. 
I had learned going way, way back from the time I was 13 years old, I was doing my dad's bookkeeping for his business. Mm -hmm. Not, I certainly wasn't doing his taxes, but I was doing the books. And I just learned to do a lot of things, you know, as Mm -hmm. a kid, I I didn't belong to sports teams. I didn't do any of that stuff. I worked for my parents. I helped run the apartments. I, you know, everything from cleaning them between tenants to keeping the carports, you know, swept to shoveling snow to doing the books all of that. And as soon as I, I guess I was 13, no, I was 14 when I got my first job in mm-hmm. addition to all of that. And <laughs> I was waitressing and working in retail stores and working for a balloon festival. And I mean, I did all kinds of crazy stuff through high school and I didn't need to work. I mean, my parent, I was given a car and a credit card to go live wow. my teenage life. Lucky you. But or unlucky. I know. Well, I know, but I know I, you know what? Um, <laughs> I'm glad I did it the way I did. Yeah. That I worked like crazy. I paid for everything myself. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I got some, you know, nice things from my parents, yeah. but I appreciate my money. And I found that I was, you know, I don't make me cry here, but. I realized that my value within my family was in service to their business. Mm-hmm. I was like an employee. Yeah, yeah. But I liked it. I liked being told I was a good worker. And yeah. that was the praise that got my juices flowing. Yeah. And and then when I found out that other bosses liked me as well and would you know pat me on the head for working hard Mm -hmm. there's my story you know i was a what you know they say to figure out what your employees really feed on is it money praise accolades attention Mm -hmm. whatever i am one-on-one praise don't need it in front of a crowd Mm, don't like it in front of a crowd no, no, but no. it's very, it, at that point, was very important to me. Mm. Thank God it isn't anymore. Yeah, yeah, you round that off nicely. And I relate to so much of what you said, um, just about everything. I started work at 14 as well, my first job. I was working at a gym and I p- pestered them for two weeks to give me a job because all the other kids worked at the supermarket or did paper rounds. I thought, stuff that, I'm not doing that. I want to pick where I'm going to work. And I'm just going to hassle them until they hire me. And I did that. I rang every day. I asked for the boss, Alan Henderson, every day at the Mount Martha (laughs) Health and Fitness Club. And I said, I need to talk to Mr. Henderson about a job. We don't have any jobs here. I said, well, I need to talk to him. Can you, you know, have him call me back, you know? And eventually he took the call and he said, look, I don't know who you are or why you keep ringing me, but come in tomorrow, five o'clock, whatever, and we'll have a talk. Went there, sat me down. He said, look, I don't know what you're going to do here. But if you're that determined to work here, I have to hire you. So you can start as soon as you're ready. We'll figure it out. And I ended up maintaining the whole joint. I mean, I I mowed the grass. I cleaned the toilets. I cleaned the spa. I repainted the pool. I set up the gym. I resurfaced the driveway. 
<laughs> did so much work there, you know, cleaned the tennis courts, repaired stuff, caught people having sex in the hot tub. It was awesome for a 14-year-old. <laughs> but you know what, Peter? You, you like me, we have an owner's attitude. Mm. Even when we were teenagers, we understood that the idea that as an owner – you do everything. You wear all the hats and nothing is beneath you and nothing is, you know, too big of a challenge. And I don't know, I don't know what it is that creates people like you and me. I've never found an employee like me to work for me. Yeah. And it is frustrating dealing with people who are in a corporate structure who don't have that me Inc. mentality. Um, Because I've always believed that even as an employee, you are still you incorporated. Um, they're paying your salary for mm-hmm. the time being, but you and your own reputation and the standards that you set for yourself are paramount and you yeah. just apply those to whoever's paying you at the time. So it is frustrating when you deal with per- people who are used to being, the, you know, a little cog in a large machine and yeah. don't want to think for themselves and don't want to think, period. They just want to, well, you know. let me ask you, do you think that you can create people like that or are they born like that? Hmm. You know, I don't know if you can create somebody like that. Um, But then again, there are plenty of stories of people who've been in the corporate machine for decades and then have, through some series of circumstances, been given almost permission to pursue something that they really care about, something that they're passionate about. All of a sudden they become, you know, a self-motivated um, maniac and can do all the stuff that normally they wouldn't be required to do as an employee. So I don't know if it's driven by desire and ambition um, or whether it's intrinsic and in you from an early age. I mean, my mother was certainly not entrepreneurial. My dad was self-employed most of his life, but he wasn't entrepreneurial. He wasn't an investor. He wasn't a business builder. Um, he didn't he had the opportunity to do big things, there's no doubt, with his skills and the fact that they never carried debt in their entire life. They could have done a lot of stuff. They could have been very wealthy, but they weren't risk takers. They weren't big thinkers. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Well, what do you, you reckon? Admit, well, well, I'm thinking of like, for instance, how your bank job bored you. Uh, mm. Don't you see? Because like sometimes when my life gets insane, I think to myself, especially when I'm between gigs, because it never makes, I never plan my departures from one thing because I want to do something else. It's always crazy circumstances in in my case, but my, (laughs) I just lost my train of thought. (laughs) You know how often I do that? I lead up to a point and then I think, holy shit, what was the point? You got it? I got it back. Good. I got it. (laughs) So I've always been jealous of people who can say, I am a mortgage originator. And that is what they do all day is (laughs) the paperwork for that job. And over the years, they get better at it and better at it and build their relationships. Mm -hmm. If I had to do that job for 30 years. You'd be drinking at 11 a.m. I would. (laughs) I couldn't. I I mean, I just couldn't. I just couldn't. Mm. It's like people who have podcasts about shoes. I mean, there are people who have podcasts (laughs) about knitting. And I think (laughs) if all I was allowed to focus on 
was knitting and to market to knitters and discuss knitting needles and yarn, I'd go insane. Totally. And maybe, maybe, well, do you think you're a little ADD? Because I'm like roaring ADD. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I can be, but I can also get into a zone and do deep work for a while. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, I do suffer a bit from hay squirrel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I do professionally. Mm -hmm. It's usually about three years before I say, oh, okay, I did that. Oh, yeah. Conquered this mountain. Yeah. No, I get you. Well, look, I worked for the same mob for the last 23 years, and I never thought I would do that because I was in publishing for seven, but that was awesome. Like I got to drive Lamborghinis when I was 18. I got to hang around (laughs) with motorsport royalty and stay in five-star resorts, fly around in private jets. So, you know, it needed that for me to stay there for seven years because the pay was crap. <clears throat> but I had freelance work, you know, as a 19-year-old, I was getting paid 100 bucks an hour back then in the 80s to do freelance work for advertisers. But still, after seven years, I thought, I, I just can't keep doing this. I can't keep driving other people's fancy cars and be piss poor my whole life, you know. As fun as this mm-hmm. is, and even the managing editor, he said, don't worry, you'll be back. They all come back, you know, because it's just so good. You know, you live this really high life, but then you go home to your shitty little bedroom that you're reading in Hawthorne and you got a, you know, 15-year-old car. Um, yeah. So eventually had to face reality. But <clears throat> the only reason I've stuck with this mob for 23 years is because 20-odd years ago we agreed to let me work from home. And so I work how and where and when pretty much I want. Like, for example, one of the directors who's based in Sydney uh, just we just had a bit of an email conversation this morning. I said, I'm going to be out of action for the next few hours, you know. So we'll sort out that other stuff later in the day. And it's never an issue. You know, I can piss off for the day and go and visit my mum. It's no big deal. I'm just, I'm offline today. Leave me alone. If I didn't have that, I would have left a long time ago. Because right. every time I go into the office there, I feel physically ill. Like everybody in their rows, in their little, you know, cubicles and the fluorescent lighting and the, meaningless banter, the shop talk, you know. I'm just not capable of that crap. I can't do it. You know, I can't talk in yeah. platitudes and acronyms all the, all day long. It just drives me insane, especially the acronyms, you know. So, <laughs> oh, oh, I've worked for government. I know acronyms. Yeah. So do you reckon you yeah. could ever go back, and I think I know the answer to this, do you reckon you could ever go back to the corporate machine, like if they paid you half a million a year? Could you do it? Well, first, first, let me say that I've never worked for a large corporation mm-hmm. ever. So I worked for, I, I led a program that was funded by state and federal governments. Mm-hmm. That's the closest I've ever come where there was lots of bureaucracy and all of that. Otherwise, I've always worked for small organizations where I was the leader. Mm-hmm. So I was hired to be you know, the number one staff person. And I had a board of directors who I answered to. Yep. And here's, here's the reason. I mean, in fact, there was a job that popped up recently that mm. had Mary Rogers name written all over it. Mm. And when I spoke with my husband about it, I said, here's the problem is if I take that job, it will be exactly, I mean, and I've done a very similar job to this one in the past, it's a 24-7 job where my name equals the name of that organization. So if I go to the grocery store, I am 
that organization. Mm-hmm. And anyone can come up to me and talk to me. It's a very public job. And the thing is, I want to be able to rep. I will only represent me for mm-hmm. the rest of my life. I cannot have to be thinking, oh, should I, can I say that? Can I mm. say that? Uh, you know, oh, let me speak for myself, not the organization. <laughs> so being like a public person when I do accept a paycheck, mm-hmm. I can't do it anymore because I can't tolerate not being authentic mm. in every moment of my day. You'll need to preface every conversation with a disclaimer. Yeah. Well, and and, and even when you do the disclaimer, you can still get fired for doing yeah. that. And I have very strong opinions. I get very passionate about things, especially within the civic arena. Mm-hmm. And I do my best to kind of rein that in on my podcast. Um, but it's there. Yeah. But there's no way. I could not go to a rally because of my job. There's no way I could like write opinion pieces and have to go, Ooh, I can't have that in print. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, I, I could not go back to a corporate workforce situation. However, I desperately miss staff meetings. I love staff meetings. Yeah. Oh, what do you love about them? Do you like to see other people uncomfortable or do you like to take over the floor and Um, and drive the conversation? Of course, of course, I'm driving the conversation. I'm the MC. I am. And my life is being an MC. It is what I love to do most of all. And but I I mean, more the sense of camaraderie Mm -hmm. and, you know, office birthday parties and, you know, everyone, you know, Secret Santa and I need to find I need to tweak my life pretty quickly because I'm just too isolated. I I am virtually highly connected all day long. I need to be flesh and blood with some human beings, which during this whole COVID thing mm. is hardly the time to uh pursue that mm. but I, I in my town we have you know numerous co-working spaces things like that mm. so have you ever tried I mean, one of those um around the edges i yeah. have I um, they each have their own culture yeah um, they're very young you know it's a lot of young men yeah it's a lot of young geeky men mm. and um you know that i i certainly don't want to i don't want to hang out with a bunch of women in their 50s because mm. that's my work. So yeah. I need other influences going into my head just yeah. to keep me relevant, I think. Yeah, I you know, know, one of my greatest mentors is Ken Fife. He's um how old is Ken now? He'd be 80 now. Yeah, he had his 80th birthday not long ago. And he doesn't want to hang around with people his own age because all they do is complain about arthritis and bits falling off and things leaking. So he hangs around with people my age, you know. And he's been my mentor yeah. for the whole time I've been with that company for 23 years. He's now the chairman, but he was the CEO for a long time, the MD before that. And we've become very good friends. And, you know, he now claims that I'm his mentor, which is a bit ironic because it's not like he's stopped getting wise. He's still he's still getting wiser and he's still learning more all the time. 
But yeah, he doesn't want to hang around. My dad's the same. He doesn't want to hang around with old people. You know. Well, I kind of like old people. Like right now, <laughs> in my fifties, I do enjoy. I especially enjoy crones, the women in their seventies. I I learn. Yeah, a crone. Have you have never heard of a no. crone? No. What's a crone? Oh, a crone is. You it, crones come up in fables and kind of mythology sort of fairy tales and such crones are typically like hags (laughs) (laughs) kind of witch-like okay um but they're really just very wise grumpy but wise men well not even grumpy but um they're postmenopausal women Mm -hmm. you know who are in in when i say i like to hang out with crones it's women who are really have a lot of they've learned so much about life and they don't i mean talk about a bs detector they have no interest Mm. and there's some incredibly wise older women who i keep very close to me Mm -hmm. and i take their advice very seriously yeah but I love hanging out with people in their 20s or their 30s. I need to do a better job of finding more people in their 30s and 40s. Yeah. Just keep it interesting. Keep it balanced, yeah. You know, i got to say, yeah. I, I, re- I relate to that. I, I kind of like hanging around with older people too mm-hmm. if they're switched on. And my mum, uh, she's 79 now, and she's got a bunch of – lovely old friends down in Rosebud, down by the seaside where she lives uh, here in Australia. And, you know, the thing that I love about them is they're very blunt, they're a little bit rude, and they just don't have the time or the patience for bullshit. And like you said, they've learned a hell of a lot, they've been through a hell of a lot, and they're at the point where they honestly don't give a crap what anyone thinks of them. And they don't waste time sharing what they actually think because – chronologically they don't have much time left you know they could cock it at any moment but also they don't um they just don't see the need to varnish things anymore you know and i really do like that i like it when people just tell you stuff straight you know especially if they don't have an ulterior motive other than just being clear about what they're thinking yeah i i i think that after 50 at least for me my experience has been like i used to think i needed to insert myself into situations that were unfolding around me mm-hmm. that somehow <laughs> I had a role to play in that nonsense and could solve the problem if they would just let me take over <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or not take over, but just get their attention that I could, you know, bring this all together mm-hmm. for them. And now it is such a joy to stay in my lane. Yeah. To see crazy shit happening either like in families or between friends and just sit back and go, wow, that sucks for them. Yeah, And it's not my circus, not my monkeys. I don't have (laughs) to do anything. And and that's been a real joy as I've gotten older. I can observe life happening around me without feeling I have any ownership of it. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. Not my circus, not my monkeys. I'm going to remember that. 
I'm going to pinch that from time to time. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Because we, we can think, I, I think so. And I think maybe women do this more often than men. We insert ourselves into situations that are not our situation. Mm. Mm. And I think men do it out of purely out of ego because we want to be the one mm. seen to ride in on the white horse and solve the problem and then get all the accolades yeah, for it. Be. So, yeah, I was yeah. guilty of that. I have been guilty of that. I am guilty of that. But I am far more cognizant of it these days and less inclined to engage. And it's a lot like my old mentor Ken does, you know. He is often sought um, by others for advice on whatever crisis is unfolding in his family's life. He's got a few daughters, you know, or in my life, you know, I've even asked him for advice on various things where it seemed like the sky was falling and he's always taken a very measured, very subdued approach to it. He hasn't felt the urge to jump in and solve it all. And at times he could have quite easily. Um, but he's um, always created space there to allow whoever it is to actually take a little, few little bits of advice from him and actually work through the problem themselves. And we both end up better for it, you know. I actually yeah. have more right. respect for him for doing that than for just, you know, flying in and solving the problem. Yeah. Have you read Wisdom at Work by Chip Conley? No. It is about, it's a guide to becoming a modern elder. And it's for people our age and older. And teaching, you know, sharing his wisdom from his experience. He used to own a chain of boutique hotels that were originally in San Francisco. And after the last big recession and, you know, he had some real business problems at that point, he was approached by Airbnb to consult. And he first, he was not interested, but he said, I'll, I'll talk to you about this. And they were in their 20s. I mean, they were just building an app. They yeah. knew nothing about the hospitality industry. And so they ended up seeing, they really saw the value of having him on their team, even if it was just as a consultant, to teach some of those soft skills to their staff. And and again, Airbnb was you know just starting out. And he ended up being there full time. But he is a modern elder in that he is advising and guiding a business where he doesn't even have a clue how to do what they do because it's all in the app. Mm. But they didn't know, they didn't understand the service side of the hospitality industry. Mm. And so that was what he brought. And now he teaches middle-aged people how to be modern elders. That's brilliant. It's a great book. When you think about it, the value of those soft skills or specific soft skills are worth far more than a particular mm. technical skill, which you could often outsource to someone else, you know, especially if we're talking anything computer-related. You know, yeah. Ken, Ken was mean, the we, same. Ken had a software company. Yeah. I mean, the company I work with is a software company. He asked me into his office once to show him how to add a photo to an email because he didn't know how to do it. And he ran a multi-million dollar software company that was global. Um, so Ken's skills have always been the soft skills and, um, 
negotiating with people of all walks of life. He is one of those archetypal, um, archetypal, is that how you say it? Archetypal? Yeah. Um, leaders who can have a casual conversation with a guy who's repairing the toilet and then go straight to, um, you know, the managing director of a Fortune 500 without skipping a beat. He's just incredibly relatable and down to worth. And that was his He's soft skills. An authentic person. Yeah. You know, well, and also when you get older, we can see what's coming down the pike before it happens, mm-hmm. which younger business people don't know yet. Mm. So when, when let's say if you're a freelancer and one of your clients says, you know what, I have found a better or a cheaper vendor than you. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really sorry, but I have to pull my business. Well, if you know that that business person is so disorganized, is a bitch to work with, you just say, okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> because it they're not going to get handled the way you handle them. Mm. And they'll be back. Mm. Dude, I mean, we're, we just know, we know the business will come back or we know that what we're hearing in a phone call are not the words of the person we're speaking with, that someone else has told them to say this. Mm. You know, I mean, we can just, we've been down this road. That's right. And you learn after a while that everything is occurring because of human beings who are flawed and imperfect, but uh, quite often quite predictable uh, because patterns emerge over, over decades of mixing with them and you start to see. Well, and life is all patterns. I love that you said that because I absolutely agree. It, it We can see the pattern. We can see the full pattern from the first move. Mm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, I've asked you one of the questions on my list. <laughs> 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 and I got like, let's see, I, one, two, three. It's like four. 11 pages of stuff you sent me. I know. I'm very I know. Now intimidated. you've added your stuff to it. It's even bigger. So <laughs> I think I'm taking a test. I'm definitely not going to ask could just you all of my questions. <laughs> I could just give you the answers, you know, in story form. Anyway. <laughs> Maybe I should just get you to write the blog post and then we can just quit the podcast right sure. now. Now, I'm sure. going to ask you some of these questions because some of these questions, um, right, I know we'll your, be, answers we'll be, be, your answers are going to be good. We'll be tight. Yes, we'll keep it nice, tight. How long do you have? I'm... Whatever. Okay. We've been going for an hour and I'm, 51 seconds. Oh, my God. I don't know how much of that was just crap, though. Well, it took us, took us 50 minutes to get rolling. To get started, so, yeah. yeah. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, tell me, I'm interested to know because I discovered a hack a while ago and I'm actually writing about it in a blog post right now about where my best ideas come from, where I am when my best ideas come, and it's not when I'm having a shit or having a shower. So I'm curious to know when – or what environment do you feel most inspired and where do your good ideas come from? When, where do they tend to surface? Where are you when this happens? I am in a learning environment of some kind. I am a junkie for tutorials and webinars and learning mm-hmm. anything. My curiosity is just insatiable. And when I especially not being in a live classroom learning something, but being in my own virtual, you know, world, listening to other people, I won't necessarily fall in love with the ideas that they are espousing. I will see my own twist on it. Mm -hmm. And 
put that together with something else that I've learned or something else that I know. And that just, it, if, if I don't know what I'm doing, if, if I need an idea, I just plug into some YouTube tutorial about just about anything. Mm-hmm. I will say though, my, I, I've said this earlier about feeling that I'm a bit charmed. I, I just attract stuff. It's like I'll attract one little idea that somehow captures my attention. And three hours later, something similar comes along. But, but within like a period of 48 hours, all the pieces appearingly disconnected come together as one cohesive idea. Do you know what it like? Mm-hmm. That happens sometimes, rarely for me, but <sighs> I, I, oh, I know what you're saying. It drives me. It's like as soon as I'm thinking about something, I'm like, well, who, what guest could I have on this show that could speak to that? I get an email from the perfect person, or I read about them in a magazine, or mm-hmm. you serendipity. Know, it, it, I'm, it's mm. kind of freaky mm. to tell you the truth. It's that- very freaky. It comes to me. It happens to me too a bit, I've got to say. The number of times where I'll be thinking about someone and then, yeah, an email pops in or uh, they ring and I'll say, I was just thinking about you. Honestly, I was honestly just thinking about you this minute. And I haven't spoken to them for two months or something, you know. That does yeah. happen a lot. Oh. <clears throat> yeah. Now, what is your life hack on this? Oh, mine is, <clears throat> this is something I developed a while ago quite by accident, is getting in my car and pissing off for one or 200 kilometers oh. with a voice recorder in my hand and just brain dumping. All my best ideas come out then because I'm not structured. Well, the main thing is my brain is is distracted with driving. So mm-hmm. my conscious brain is distracted. So I can't oh. think consciously. I can only let the subconscious work for the most part and because I'm male and I can't multitask. So I just talk into my phone like I'm having a conversation with somebody about how I'm going to solve this problem. So, okay, so this software, it needs to do this. But if it's going to do this, then it needs to have that bit of software work with it. How can that work? Maybe if we do this and we do that. And I'll just talk my way through it. And I started doing that, oh, it must have been a decade and a half ago. I had to come up with a software solution uh, that allowed dealers to share data and sell parts online. And this was, God, this was actually in the late 90s. So it's you know, not very far into the internet becoming fairly mainstream. So I found a lake called Lake McCohen, which is a 200 case in my house, and I drove to it every day with a little Sony tape recorder in my hand. And I would record stuff as I was driving. Then I would sit there on a park bench. This was during spring, which was nice. And I would sit there on a park bench by the lake all day and transcribe my notes and then assemble them into something that made sense. And I did that for a week. And at the end of it, I had a software solution. You know, and if I'd have sat in an office in a cubicle, you know, with people thrusting TPS reports at me and fluoro light flickering, I wouldn't have gotten past the first page. It wouldn't have happened, you know. So that's the big one for me is in my car, driving around, brain dumping. The other one is in my garage with a glass of Shiraz in my hand. You know, I do that every afternoon and I read, I write, I tinker, I, you know, think about stuff. And it's always when I stop trying to think, that the good ideas come. I've got to distract myself with something, mm-hmm. you know. And if I can't distract yeah. myself with something, then red wine works. By the second glass, I'm sufficiently <laughs> distracted. Yeah, that but, stuff then it, comes. but then in the morning, you look at what you create and you're like, what was I thinking? <laughs> what was I 
thinking. Well, it, so you, all right. I, one of my concerns about if I were to work in an environment with other human beings is I talk to myself all day long. <laughs> I do that sometimes And too. this was one of the most difficult things during our real stay at home order when I had my husband working at, you know, he was running his business from the dining room table. Mm-hmm. My college age student was going to college in the living room and I was still talking to myself and I kept hearing, what did you say? Mom, what was that? Mom, do you need me? And I'm like, no, I'm working. Leave me alone. Are you recording, mom? It's like, no, I'm just talking to myself. It's how I process. I, you know, I, some people don't do that. I do it all the time. It's enormously useful. It really is. All those people walking down the street having arguments with themselves, they're probably the geniuses. <laughs> I think so. Well, and I I mean, sometimes I'll have two sides of a conversation, myself, <laughs> which is even stranger, but Well, at least one side will, always wins. Well, at least true, you always win. <laughs> true. What what I also like for people who deal with anxiety issues and uh I, I do find that when I start having a brain cramp because I just can't think of something or I'm upset or, you know, having a day where my self-confidence, you know, is on the floor, that it does help for me to say, well, look what Mary's doing today. Mary is just being stupid again. And mm-hmm. just I kind of set myself straight and it makes me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> it works. It really does. You know, when I was yeah. going through my divorce, when the shit was hitting the fan six ways to Sunday, I'd work my ass off till two, three in the morning, months on end, sometimes 24 hours straight, day after day, to build up um, on one side a business that I was trying very hard to build online with Polo Cosmetics out of Japan. And the other was investment properties, renovating, subdividing, all this sort of shit, right? And I was just working myself to the bone. And then I lost it all and I got divorced. And I went from five properties that were worth quite a lot of money to no properties at $140,000 in debt. And the worst thing was I couldn't see my little daughters every day. And my little Sarah, who at two onwards would get out of her bed, crawl into my side of the bed, push me and say, Daddy, 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 move. And she would crawl in and snuggle up to me, my little blonde cherub, you know. And I lost that. And it was devastating. And, you know, this triggered the the onset of my midlife crisis and I was horrible and depressed and, you know, I drank a lot. It was terrible. Um, And then I remember one day going into the bathroom and I just looked at the bathroom and I said, fuck it, Fritz, just be happy anyway. Just try it. <laughs> and I smiled at myself and I thought, holy crap, that actually feels all right. <laughs> yeah. I told yeah. myself to be happy. And the, but the main thing was, fuck it, just be happy anyway. It doesn't matter what's happened. Yeah. Everyone expects you to be miserable and want to slash your wrists, but just decide you're going to be happy anyway. Just fuck it. Yeah. What's the worst well, that could happen? Well, and aren't you glad you did? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's, um, I, I, I wish I had known when I was younger 
that my brain was not my friend and that I could control my brain through my thoughts and my actions. I didn't, no one taught me. Most people don't know that now they don't know that. You know, there, I mean, when I say I talk to myself, it's because, and where I can carry on two sides of the conversation, (laughs) it truly is because I know my thoughts are working against me. Yeah. You are not your thoughts. And (laughs) if you choose to argue with them, I mean, some people are better. They can just say, oh, I'm not going to think that anymore. I need to actually talk myself out of it. Um, but it's it really is true. I mean, and it, don't you think, Peter? So much of this is believing in yourself and self confidence. I mean, that's it. Mm. That's it. Mm. I think a good dose of perspective too. Um, the post that I've been writing this morning is about how ridiculous we all are. I saw that photo the other day of Earth shot from Mars, and it's a tiny little pinprick, a couple of pixels out there in the inky blackness of space. And it reminded me of that other photo of Earth shot from under the rings of Saturn. Just an awesome photo. And, you know, every war, every disagreement, every divorce, every problem that ever originated throughout history is on that dot, those three or four pixels floating out there, you know. It's all so pointless and trivial and we beat ourselves up over the dumbest things, you know, and all of it at the end matters naught. What matters is living while you're alive and realising that you're such an incredible fluke of good fortune to even be here to play the game that we didn't come out as bacteria. We're actually humans, can talk and podcast and stuff like this. So bloody hell, you know, have fun with it because it will be over. In 120 years, everyone who's here will be dead, <laughs> every single one of yeah. them, you know, barring the invention yeah. of a drug that keeps us alive longer. Oh, and a few Japanese oh, people who seem to live 130. Oh. <laughs> so nah. you're right, you're right. Um, and talking to yourself I think is a very smart thing to do because you can't trust your brain. Your brain will sabotage you at, at every turn yep. if you let it. Yeah. All right. Let's get on to some of these other questions, eh? Um, this one I'm interested to know. In the last five years, what new belief or behavior or habit has most improved your life? Can you think of anything? So this is kind of interesting. We're going into it. It has a lot to do with what we were just talking about. So one of my newer behaviors is writing each morning. And I mean, you can call it journaling, you can call it morning pages, call it whatever you will, but it absolutely keeps me sane. And I I, I was writing for a long time before I found my groove that I enjoyed as a daily habit. I started, I, I was reading the book, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, who teaches people to do, she was the original morning pages person. Okay. Yep. And her, you know, she tells you just if you have to write three pages a day, and even if you are writing line after line of blah, 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 I don't know what to say. I have nothing to say. Then you, that's what you're going to do for three pages, but you must do that. And she was teaching writing kind of as a, a form of meditation where, for instance, when you are learning to meditate and you have random thoughts come into your mind and then you gently, you know, you acknowledge they're there and then let them float away. This was the same theory she was asking people to use in their daily morning pages that 
you'd be writing whatever you want to write. But when you would have a thought like, oh, is that how you spell that word? Or look at your ugly handwriting. Or you don't use that. That's not the right word for you to ignore that, what she calls the censor in all of us. Mm -hmm. And just Mm -hmm. to keep writing and train your brain to not listen to the censor. Her ultimate goal for her students was for them to learn to be more creative, even if it were as a painter or a singer, that learning to not listen to your censor through this morning practice of writing. Mm -hmm. So I definitely learned a lot through that process, but I didn't want to devote three pages a day to that practice because I do it in my meditations. What I do is I, I write every day as if I am speaking to this new, awesome best friend who I have found. And she is awesome. And she is the person I write to. Mm-hmm. And I can't, she doesn't have a name. She's just someone who also happens to think I'm awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you should give her a name and make sure it's got a Z in it or an X. I think imaginary friends should always have one of those letters in it, like Zendaya. (laughs) But the weird thing is, I genuinely feel like I have a new friend in my life. You know, I'll I'll be, you know, I'm going to go sit somewhere for a while and I'll be like, oh, where's where's my book? Where's my book? That's kind of cool, actually. Because I want to take her with me Mm -hmm. and I'll write to her for a while. And I could, I mean, you could throw all these pages away after I'm done. I don't, it's not a record of anything for later. No. It's just for the purpose of the time that I spend. So that would be the behavior that I have adopted recently that it really has changed my life. And then the belief that I have come to in the last five years is I am... I I don't mean for this to sound hokey or corny. It is truly what I believe. I believe I am here to serve people with compassion. And like you said in the intro, to make someone's life suck less. Mm. At least one person every day. Mm. And I'm so lucky that I have the platform to do that. And I'm really honored that I can be here to do the mentoring with my listeners because I I, I just know that's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. I know that that is why I am here because of what these people say to me afterwards, Mm -hmm. you know, like towards the end of a call. Yep. And I, I will get off a call and I'll just kind of have to sit in that space for a while because something really beautiful has happened. Yeah. That someone's load is lighter when they get off the call. And how much more rewarding must that be compared mm. to someone who makes a thousand bucks a day out of ads <laughs> or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I am honored to have that experience in my day, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that that was not always me. I'm going to tell you. It mm. wasn't always me. When I made the mistake of in like 2009, I think. Yeah. 2009, 2010. 
New Year's Eve. I realized that I lacked compassion. And this is the strangest thing. Mm -hmm. I actually said on Mary in the morning, my New Year's resolution is to develop more compassion, which is a pretty strange thing to say. So Mm -hmm. some force was knocking on my head, letting me know. I had, I kind of had a charmed life, you know, listen to the stories I've told you, things just fell in my lap and, you know, so within (laughs) that year, oh my gosh, I like how many surgeries did I end up having? I, my life was just, it was ridiculous. I could see this one coming. How much, (laughs) oh yeah, I learned to be compassionate Mm. through, um, a seri- a ridiculously insane series of events that were not of my making that left me vulnerable and needing help. Mm-hmm. Help. I needed other people's help. <laughs> that sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> oh my gosh. I had I mean, we're like physically I needed their help. Um my best friend, you know, died of a heart attack in front of me. Wow. I oh I mean everything over a series of like three years. Well, first, the first year was just so much bad stuff. I can't even tell you followed by um, right after my 50th birthday, my best friend died in front of me, cleaned up his blood, planned his funeral. Bloody hell. And then I was diagnosed with breast cancer uh, three weeks later. Jay. And I'm just going to tell you, you want some compassion? Let life kick in the teeth about 25 times over 18 months. It was, mm. it was, in, it was like, where, where is this black cloud that is following me? Not just like, you know, I'd get gum on my shoe, but like, you know, big, ugly, awful, bad things. You're stepping in dog so, shit every step. Oh, and that was like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 10 to seven years ago, I went through a living hell. Uh, and, and, and thank goodness. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very sorry for some of the things that happened, but man, am I a better person? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'll just tell you, I, I understand now what pain feels like all mm-hmm. over inside and out. And I'm very, uh, I'm so happy when I can help someone. Yeah. And do you notice now that when uh, you see people behaving in ways that seem illogical and irrational and, um, you know, whether it's aggressive or it's just plain old crazy, that you think now more about, well, what must be going on in their life to have led them to this point to be behaving this way? I mean, I don't know if you do, but I, I find... Lately, I've been noticing this a lot where in the past, and I think this is all about building compassion, is in the past I would look at people acting a certain way and think, you're an idiot. Why are you behaving that way? Why are you being so rude or aggressive or so careless or lazy or sloppy or whatever it is? And then I have to remind myself if everything that had happened to them happened to me in the same order that it happened to them, I'd probably be doing exactly the same thing and, and in actuality, they're, they're doing exactly what they should be doing right now because they, yeah. they are the sum total of everything that's happened up to this point. It's the yeah. same with, you know, tragedy. You know, midlife crisis. Who gives a crap about a midlife crisis when you're 30? It's like, get over yourself. And then you have one and you think, 
now I really relate to people who are going through a midlife crisis or cancer, you know, or the loss of a baby or whatever, you know, until it happens to us. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and going when you say, you know, when you encounter someone who's being an ass or whatever, now, psychologically speaking, I mean, there's so much research now into the impact later in life on someone who experienced childhood trauma of some kind. Mm -hmm. And the question is no, like if you're, if you're looking at someone who is an addict or, or an asshole, some, you know, some strange behavior that is self-destructive and they drive a wedge between themselves and every other human. The question isn't what's wrong with you. The question is what happened to you? Mm. Yep. So true. There's an, there's an actual, test that people can take i think it's called act or ace uh, but it's an assessment yeah assessment of childhood trauma Mm -hmm. and you can get up to 12 points (laughs) depending on how many parents went to jail how many people touched you inappropriately you know Mm -hmm. all, all these things and your score will tell you the likelihood of a whole list of adult situations and behaviors yeah. And it is a solid indicator. That sounds interesting and entirely believable. Oh, I re- yeah. I read a little while ago that um, there is actually huge value in talking to your infant child pretty much from birth like an adult and not, uh, you know, talking in a mollycoddle sort of fashion like you would with a baby, but just talking to them like you would talk to a grown-up, um, that those first two years of talking to them like that has huge ramifications down the track as an adult in their um, synaptic connections and their cognitive behavior and all this sort of stuff. Um, something that you would think would have no impact on a kid that just, you know, drools and shits themselves all the time. But apparently yeah. it does, has a huge impact. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure we've all had things that happened to us, traumatic things as children that we were unable to articulate to our parents mm. of what we saw or what happened. And, you know, well, it's like, here. here's an example. People who are arrogant. And Mm -hmm. I mean, we all encounter arrogant people. Mm -hmm. What I was fortunate enough to learn, and I don't know where, but I figured it out or someone told me, is that arrogant people are the most insecure people you will ever meet. Mm -hmm. And if they don't believe that you think they're hot shit, then they're going to behave like even hotter shit than they want you to think they are. And hopefully you'll believe the act. And I have found that when I encounter a very arrogant person, if I start complimenting them on things that are genuine mm-hmm. and real about them, it can't be, you can't, I mean, they have a BS detector, you know, better than ours. Because they spin it if, better than anything anyone. Right. Mm-hmm. So false praise isn't going to do it. But if mm-hmm. you can start giving them positive feedback, it goes away. The arrogance goes away and mm-hmm. they will be your best friend ever. They will be your cheerleader and your champion. And a lot of bosses are like this. Yes. And if you start thanking them for how they are demonstrating their leadership or the impact that it has had on you, that they hired you, um, but the, it has to be authentic. Yes. They will. I mean, spread their wings and take you on a flight. Mm. I totally agree with that. 
I've experienced similar things with people that I found to be abrasive uh, and pompous and arrogant. Uh, I can think of one in particular who holds a high position with a company I work with and uh, he was originally hired as a consultant and not many people got along with him and he was quite arrogant. Um, But I think a lot of it wasn't necessarily bloated self-importance. I think a lot of it was just a character flaw. It was a, a lack of charisma. He didn't have soft skills with people and he came across as very arrogant and aloof. And when he left, I said to him, look, I know a lot of people uh, found it difficult and we've had a couple of disagreements, but I have to say that I really enjoyed working with you, challenging as it was sometimes, and I have a lot of respect for you. And I said a couple of other specific things. I can't remember what they were because it was a long time ago. And they were genuine um, measures of praise because there were aspects of you know, I, I actually kind of like finding a reason to like a difficult person. Um, if their principles are strong, if they have values that align to mine, and I don't need to interrogate them, but if I get a sense that they're actually a decent person but they have this charisma flaw or this character flaw, I like to find a way to work with them and get along with them because I think once you lower that barrier with a very difficult person, they become one of your greatest champions and you can mm-hmm. have a really good oh, relationship yeah. with them. And in the end, he came back. He came back to the organisation and a lot of people who were quick to dismiss him and poo-poo him on the way out now had to face him again and this time he was their boss. (laughs) Oh, Oh, lesson learned. Yes. No bridges. Yeah, that's right. Um, Yeah. So let me ask you a question. mm -hmm. When you – kind of along the same line of dealing with arrogant people, do you find that when you have to work with – especially people in their 20s and 30s, and maybe it's more a chick thing than a guy thing, but that instead of stating their opinions or giving their advice or whatever their input is on, let's say, a project, they will begin sentences to soften the blow of expressing themselves. Like, well, I think it's kind of like... yes. I feel like maybe, maybe it's just me. And what is that? I don't know. My son does it. Did we talk like that? Did we talk like that when we were I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think we spoke um, explicitly. And I had been trying to teach my daughters and my son to overcome this thing as as much as I possibly can. I say, don't tell me you'd kind of like to do something. Tell me you'd like to do something. Don't tell me you think maybe this. Just tell me what you think. And you don't have to throw the word like in five times in each sentence. I don't want to know. Or I think. Yeah, They don't exactly. even have to say I think. Just say it. Mm. You Just know what else I hate? It. I hate it when people say, can I ask you a question? When they do that, I say, well, that's one. You want to ask another one? <laughs> Why ask me the question, can I ask you a question? Well, you just asked me a question and it was a wasted one. You've blown one of your questions. You've got two left. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or apologizers who say, I'm sorry, before they've said anything. Sorry, but. And it's just, oh, I'm sorry, but could I ask ask you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, I I had a, a niece who it was so ingrained in her for some reason she would apologize at the dinner table before asking for the potatoes. I'm sorry, could I have the potatoes? I'm sorry, could I have the salt? Mm. <laughs> I was like, where does 
that come from? Yeah, it is weird, isn't it? I don't know. Because the opposite is it. maybe they, I mean, for people like you and me and probably most of the folks who are listening to us right now, when we think something, we state an, our opinion as if it's a fact because it's coming out of our mouth. Of course, it's going to be taken as an opinion, I believe. Mm-hmm. And maybe there, I don't know, maybe some people think we're arrogant. Peter, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what they think. <laughs> I, I much rather deal with somebody who isn't backward and coming forward, who understands how to be um, explicit in their um, dialogue without being offensive. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Exclusive. You can be very succinct about what you think um, without offending somebody or without, no, because whether or not they're offended is their choice, but without um, deliberately seeking to offend somebody, you know, or diminish yeah. them. You can be very I blunt. I hate this whole of not offending people, political correctness thing. Mm. I'm just, it, I, don't, I think it's maybe worse in the U.S. than Australia. Um, it's, probably. It's Australia's pretty laid back, you know. We're like, get over yourself. I mean, you know, people can go up and tell our prime minister that he's a dickhead and he'll take it on the chin, you know. Just like, yeah, I understand, mate, but, you know, here's what we're trying to do. I know you don't agree with it or you mightn't agree with it, but, you know, this is why we're doing what we're doing and we reckon it's going to be the right thing if we're wrong. Happy to be proven wrong, you know. It's very laid back here, you know. It's like I had this conversation with a couple of girls from New Zealand a while ago about their Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, and, you know, a lot of people are raving about Jacinda. I think she's awesome. Um, And they were laughing about how over here – our Prime Minister um, is called ScoMo. His name's Scott Morrison. But, you know, everyone just calls him ScoMo. Mm-hmm. And the leader of the opposition is called Albo. <laughs> His name's <laughs> uh, Albanese. His surname's Albanese. And that's how laid back they are in Australia. It's like Albo and ScoMo. <laughs> They're the two. That's nice. The leaders of the two political parties here. Yeah. Let's get on to well, some I of these other. Just, oh, no, okay. no, no. Go on. Go on. No, I was just it. Last night I was researching for an article that I had to submit this morning on individualism mm-hmm. as a cultural trait, and that there is a a metric, a study that was done that measures the how much a culture values individualism, and the highest ranking score went to big surprise the united states of america at a 91 followed by australia with a 90 and keeping in mind that like little african nations like ghana are like a 6 mm-hmm. guatemala is a 6 um that we we don't work well well our our culture doesn't value collectivism that we're all about, you know, our own pursuit of everything. In Australia, given that you have such a high individualism score, do you, do you feel like people in your country care about the common good as much as they should? Because that's what I'm worried about in America right now. Well, it's funny you should say that because um, the um, the success that Australia's had with fighting uh, the coronavirus and um, – Flattening out the curve has been pretty impressive from what I've read compared to other countries. And my wife follows the stats daily. I think it's her version of the stock market without risking capital. And um, 
a lot of that has been because people in Australia have taken a collective approach to uh, diminishing the chance of transmission. And I've seen it when I've been out with people making a very deliberate effort to keep distance from each other. And, you know, everyone's disinfecting everywhere they go and mm-hmm. people wearing gloves. And even when we go out for a walk, you know, a lot more people out walking on the streets now getting exercise, which is really great. And they all say hi and they all sort of part on the footpath and then, you know, come back again to where they were walking. Um, and the take-up of the app here, the COVID-19 app, which tracks um, contact tracing between people and those who have um, known cases, the take-up of that was huge as well. So I think, yeah, there has been a real rallying um, approach to this, you know, current situation in Australia. So, yeah, individualism is... Uh, certainly respected in Australia. There are always breakouts of um, small breakouts of racist behaviour and, um, you know, people who are anti-LGBTQ and, what, you know, all that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, I think it's far less um, concentrated and intense than it is in other countries. You know, with what I see going on in the US now, you know, that kind of stuff would not get legs here in Australia. It just wouldn't. You know, the level of racism and hatred and, um, uh, you know, uh, people's feelings towards refugees and all this sort of stuff, it, it just wouldn't be allowed to take root in Australia. People just wouldn't let it happen. You know, there would be small pockets of it and there will always be small pockets of that anywhere, but it would never get the, um, the support here that I've seen it get from groups in the US, that's for sure. Well, maybe I need to move to Australia because I'm getting pretty disgusted. Yeah, we all are. I mean, my daughters, uh, 19 and 17, they desperately wanted to go and protest um, in the city uh, two weeks ago um, about the Floyd death and about deaths of Aboriginals in custody here in Australia. And I fully supported them in that. You know, I, I admire the fact that they take on causes with a passion and that they truly feel empathy. But in the end, the day before, I said, look, I think it's probably best actually you don't go because uh, it's going to be very hard to avoid pressing against others and I don't think you're going to do anyone any favours if you either get or spread this virus. So they agreed to stay home and they offered their support in another way, you know. But, yes, um, there is a lot of yeah. support for the injustices that are going on in the US at the moment here in Australia, yeah. for sure. Yeah, it's tough for anyone to, you know, put themselves out in order to make sure that things are fair and just for a, gr- a group that you do not belong to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that is what I see. A lot of Americans have just lost the, it's like, I have a right to not wear a mask. I'm not going to wear a mask because I don't, you know, no one's going to tell me what to do. Mm. It's like, what is that all about? It's mm. just crazy. I've always railed against a person who talks about their rights as taking <sighs> precedence over what's right. You yeah. know, my rights versus what's right. Uh, I yeah. hate that. I hate that. Let's, yeah. Why okay. don't we run through some Enough of Tim Ferriss's questions? Because they'll be easy. Because we wrote down Peter. our answers, so we know what we're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we I, keep saying we'll be fast. So. Yeah, we're not. Okay, We've been an hour and 38. I'm going to hit you with one now. You ready? Okay. Okay. Yep. Tell me, I'm going to go for number one, so this is easy. What is the book oh, yeah. or books 
that you've given most as a gift? I reckon that's a brilliant question. Much better than what have you read that you loved. So what have you given most as a gift and why? Um, or what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? That's the uh, chicken I out question. I will say, all right, so my, the book that I gift and I just keep a stack of them is The E-Myth Revisited Why Most Small Businesses Don't Work and What to Do About It by Michael Gerber. I have been giving this to people for years and, I mean, gosh, I think I It's first, an old book now. It's, it's a brilliant a book. It's a really old book, but mm. it teaches a lesson for people you know, to not create a job, but to create a business. Mm, not to fall, not to succumb to the entrepreneurial seizure, as he calls it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, I, I, I love that book about the pie company, the pie shop, and the whole bit. So, for anyone who feels like they are just overwhelmed with a small business that they have started because they loved, you know, making pies, and now they don't spend time making pies and they're miserable. This is yes. the book that you need to read. Yeah. You? What's what's your book? Well, my one um, that I've bought the most of and given away, I think I bought about 12 of them um, soon after I read it, was The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson. And I was attracted to it like most people by the title. Um, bright orange cover, rude word, might be funny. You know, read the blurb, mm, looks funny. So read it, was astounded at how good it was, how deeply thoughtful his ideas are. And um, promptly bought a whole bunch of them. Um, brought a copy to my mother, who, as I said, is 79, um, very strong Christian, this little four foot 11 woman who, you know, loves to talk about the wonderful trees that God made and, you know, all the, uh, the splendor attributed to her beliefs. Grabbed this book out of my hand when I went to visit her. What's this? I said, um, Try and ignore the cover, but have a bit of a flick through. I think you might be surprised. And there in the driveway, she opened it up, read a bit, and went, ooh, I like this. And, I mean, the word fuck is probably in there a thousand times, if not more. But she absolutely loved it. She read the whole thing. She loved it. So did my dad. So did my daughters. I gave a copy to Ken. Now, Ken, as I mentioned, is about 80, and he is very widely read. And um, he said, I have to say that is probably the best book I've ever read. It is incredible how good that book is. And he just read it again the other day, told me that he just read it again. And it is very, very good. So I bought quite a few of those. And just recently I also bought um, a number of copies of this, which is very similar. <laughs> oh, I've seen that showing up in lists. Yeah, it is very good. I'm actually interviewing him Um Next month, Matthew. He's mm-hmm. a funny guy. And that is a very – actually, this book is perfect for you and I and people who we want to train to think like you and I. Like just just cut the crap, get a grip, and just go and do what you know you have to do. Yeah. Like stop rooting around with all these other things on the periphery. Just do what you know you have to do. You know it all already. And Matthew just tells you what you already know. And he repeats over and over, you know this stuff. That's a brilliant book. Oh, it's just paying attention to the right thing. Yeah, I didn't say actually because I was holding this up and I stopped recording the video anyway. The book that I'm talking about is Matthew Kimberley's book, Get a Fucking Grip, How to Get Your Life Back on Track. Brilliant book. I have not read it. Well, um, it hasn't been out long. I think it only just came out. Um, He actually wrote another version of this years and years ago 
which I haven't read. Um, but this one, yeah, this one just came out. Uh, this is interesting. It says text copyright 2011, 2019. So 2011 was the first iteration and this must be a revision. Uh, and the first one wow. didn't have the same title. I think it didn't have the effing in it. He must have seen um, Mark Manson's book and thought, I've got to throw an effing in there in my book title. It'll sell more. Yeah. Well, see, I, I reject, I, I resisted that book because I thought it was a gimmick. Mm. Yeah. And I think other people will for that same reason. Um, but I succumbed to it and so glad I did. It is a brilliant, brilliant book. All right, let me ask yeah. you another one. Well, let me ask you one now. Okay. All right. All right, Peter. In the last five years, Tim wants to know, what have you become better at saying no to? Distractions, invitations, etc. What new realizations and or approaches helped and do you have any other tips? All right. Well, this is something that took me a long time to learn because of my um, ambitious can do anything, can solve any problem attitude. And, you know, I can squeeze 36,000 to 24. I was always taking on any project somebody cared to pass my way. Some of it was ego, um, not wanting to say no to people, not wanting to seem that I was overwhelmed and couldn't handle their request. But I have learned especially after I had my first heart attack, which is a long time ago now, but it was still bloody scary at two o'clock in the morning. I have learned that I have to say no to stuff. And um, once I reached 40, I actually decided that I'm going to start saying no to things that I don't want to do and I'm not going to explain why because I figured I don't have to anymore. (laughs) So the thing that I have become very good at saying no to is small projects and opportunities um, for easy money where there is any sign that I'm not going to enjoy doing the work or that I don't um, believe in the person who's giving me the work, that I don't believe in um, the outcomes that they seek. You know, I'm, not, I'm not being too altruistic here. It's just a case of I've done work in the past where there was a chance to make some good money doing something that didn't interest me, didn't feel right, felt a bit sleazy, um, didn't feel like the person that I was getting the money from was going to benefit from you know, my work that much. Um, and I just don't want to do that stuff anymore. So mm-hmm. the funny thing is once you become picky and selective, then you get a better quality of client and a better quality project that usually pays more and gives you less headaches. So, mm-hmm. you know, whereas in the past I would build, I've been building websites since 96 and for years and years and years, I would build websites for people for two grand, three grand, you know, and there were people doing them for 500 bucks. So I still felt like, well, I'm more expensive than them. But then um, I picked up a job um, and was asked by somebody in the know to give them the quote first for them to look over it. And I gave it to them. They said, this is great. They're going to love it, but it's too cheap. You need to double the price or else they won't take it seriously. So great. Okay. So I'll double the price. Then I... Pr- presented it to these people. They accepted it almost immediately. And I found out through a quirk of chance that they actually had budgeted double again. So I could have doubled it and then doubled it again. And so that set the new high watermark. And I thought, well, these people are brilliant. They love me. They trust me. They're like a $4 billion a year company. And they're trusting me to do this work and leaving me alone to do it. Um, In fact, the CEO of the corporation said, just leave Peter alone. Let him do his job. He did a great job on this other project, which is why we hired him. Just let him do it. And I had free reign. It was awesome. And so now anyone who wants a website done, I tell them, sorry, the 
minimum I charge now is 10 grand for a website. And I've gone on to do stuff now for, you know, um, 15. I quoted a job yeah. recently for 40, you know, and I would never have entertained the thought of that before. Well, let, let's talk about saying no when it's not about work. It's not mm-hmm. about money. It's about your time. And yep. it's, let, let's let say it's more of a, a social situation mm-hmm. or someone asking you for your professional advice, just, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, where you're not going to charge anything for it, but mm-hmm. like say a charity really needs a just a simple website and they'll take whatever you can give them, but you don't like the charity. You don't, you don't, you just don't want to do it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Can you, have you, how do you, cause I think this is where a lot of people get stuck, not yeah. necessarily with charities, but it's being a gatekeeper for our time yes. and learning to say no. And I know, I know my new approach, well, I have a couple, but how do you handle that? Well, I have in the past had a lot of people ask me for favors to build them something or to pick my brains, um, to ask for advice. And I think a lot of them think they're doing you a favor. They're kind of saying, I think you're an expert. You know, I've got a lot of respect for you and what you do. I I really want to rub your ego and get you to share some of your wisdom with me. And in reality, they probably just want something for nothing. Um, So now I just say, wish I could, but I can't. You know, I've got way too much on. And in fact, what I have, I'll tell you one way I have gotten around this, and I've done this quite a bit actually, and I forgot about it when I wrote this answer. What I've said to people is, look, if I devote five hours to doing this thing for you, given that my schedule is already full, if I give you five hours, that's five hours I can't spend with my son or my daughters, and I'm not prepared to do that. Because there are only 24 hours in a day, and my day is full with work, and I make sure I spend every evening with my son. I pick him up every day from school. I drop him off every day. I, it is critical to me that I devote time to him every day because being present is the most valuable thing that I can be for him and for me. You know, it's really important for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My dad gave it to me. I'm not going to make him miss out on that. So if you ask me to do this thing for you, you're actually stealing time away from my son. <laughs> and I can't do it. Sorry. <laughs> and look, when he grows up and he moves out of home, then it'll be, sorry, you're stealing time away from me and my wife. When do you expect <laughs> me to have sex? Like, you, know, you, want, you want me to do your job instead of play with my wife? No. There you so, go. There, look, and, and on a softer note, sometimes my daughters will say, um, you know, Dad, can you pick me up from school and take me to get a, do a hairdressing appointment? And... In the past, I would just always do it. It's just like, okay, I'll just drop the work and I'll do it. It's two and a half hours out of my day to pick them up from school, take them to St Kilda, sit around and wait for their hair to be done or their eyebrows or whatever and pick them up and take them home because I want to be the ultimate dad, you know. And now I realise, well, probably in the last couple of years I've realised that that is, it's kind of like just giving your kids money all the time and asking them to value money. It doesn't yeah. work. You can't give them money yep. and then say value money. So I've had to say to them, um, I can't. Um, I can't afford to spend two and a half hours uh, this afternoon doing that. Um, but if you give me a bit more notice next time, then I can probably work around it. Um, or if you get it done closer to home, that would be great. But I'm afraid you're going to have to find another way there, Uber or your mum or whatever, you know. Um, so that's how I've handled that. Tough love, baby. Mm, mm. <laughs> yeah. Good parenting is what I call it. 
Yeah, I, th- I don't think you can just uh, – I don't think you can have conditional principles. I think your principles have to be your principles. Um, sometimes you can break rules. I'm a big believer in breaking rules. But principles, um, if you break them a few times or you ignore them a few times, then it diminishes their value and then it's very hard to prosecute them down the track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, Dad, yeah. the last seven well, times you did it and you reckon that you're not, you, know, you don't do that. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I think I have it right here. Hold on. Have a new kid by Friday. This book, (laughs) for anyone who says their kids are giving them a hard time, doesn't matter how old they are. That is the best book ever. Have a new kid by Friday. The guy has now come out with have a new husband by Friday, have a new boss by Friday, have a new employee by Friday. It is the same concept throughout every book, which is tell these people that if they do what you've said not to do, this will be the repercussion and then do it. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. It is that simple. And be the person you've said you're going to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they say, your kids don't listen to what you say, but they watch everything you do. How many of us have allow people to not meet our expectations and whatever we threatened would happen, we pull it off the table ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we do this with our, I mean, with our kids. It's like, don't hit mama, smack. Don't hit mama, smack. Don't hit mama. <laughs> I know. And, and it, anyway, I've interviewed this guy. He's, um, a little he, he's he said when he pitched it to his publisher he said i can write a book called have a new kid by you know in an hour mm-hmm. and the publisher said well no because people won't buy the book it'll sound too easy can you make it sound like a week and he said <laughs> i'll say by friday it'll just depend on when they start reading yeah but anyway, <laughs> i'm i'm right with you on saying no and it's something that i was not good at in the past, but now I am so happy to just when I don't want to. I that's the thing is I just don't do anything I don't want to do anymore. Mm. I, I mean, if it's a good friend who needs help, of course I, yeah. you know, that's one of my values and something that's important to me. But mm. when I get asked to do something I don't want to do, I will say I have to say no without mm-hmm. going into all the reasons why. I just have to say no. Yeah, and then. And then here's the lesson I've learned along my little journey through this fabulous world is say what you need to say to someone in any situation, especially if it is bad news that you do not want to deliver or it is a big changing piece of information for someone is tell them the information and then shut up. Mm, Rip the bandaid off. Shut up. (laughs) You stop talking. Give them the space to absorb it. You don't have to apologize for it or accept responsibility for the information. Deliver and shut up. <laughs> you know, one of my old mentors is a guy called Phil McKenzie when I was selling Hondas as a young guy in my 20s. And he was one of these wonderful, calm, very ethical, honest people. He was rare in the car industry, put it that way. Yeah. And um, they had a policy there that if you ever make a promise to a customer, we don't care if it costs us 20 grand because you screwed up. We will honor it. We'll always honor it. Uh, great place to work. But he taught me that when you're negotiating a price on a car with somebody that you're selling is 
when you get to the pointy end and you state your price, the next one who speaks loses. So you've got to shut up. Somebody might say, listen, um, you know, I'm prepared to give you 30 grand for this car. And your next thing might be, after you've consulted with your boss, might be, listen, I can't do it for 30, but if I could give you the car for 32 grand on the road, what would you say? And he said, then if you open your mouth and say one more word, you've lost. You know, is what we're saying before about qualifying a question or a statement, sorry this, or, you know, I feel a little bit maybe like this. And that's qualifying pre-question, whereas the other is really qualifying post-statement. And you shouldn't, I agree with you, you shouldn't. You state your case, shut up. Yeah. Well, and it's just like having a new kid by Friday, you know. (laughs) Say what you mean and mean what you say. I've written it down. I'm going to read that. I'm definitely (laughs) going to read that. Okay, let me ask you a question now. Um, hmm, what am I going to ask you? All of Tim's questions are good. Uh, I like this one. The question's long, the answer is short. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, getting a message out to millions, I love your answer on this, by the way, <laughs> getting a message out to millions or billions, what would it say and why? It could be a few words or a paragraph. If, help- if helpful, it can be someone else's quote. Anyway, billboard. Statement on it. What would it be for you? You can change your mind. Brilliant. Love it. For some reason, we think that changing your mind is a bad thing. And I'm not talking about when we said before that our minds are not our friends. That that's a whole different thing. Mm. I'm saying you can you can come to a new decision about something. You can change your mind that this person I and marrying is the best person for me to be with and later decide, you know, I'm, I'm going to assume you've gone through all the steps, but to change your mind that this is not the best person for me to be married to. Mm-hmm. This is no longer the right job for me. This is no longer, you know, I'm, I'm not Christian anymore. I'm God, I grew up a Democrat. I think I'm a Republican. I mean, these are more big picture ideas. But even in our simple days of, you know, it kind of goes back to saying no. If you've said yes to something and after a day or a month or whatever, or five minutes, if you realize, eh, I I really made a mistake here. You don't have to go through with it. I mean, I think your word is worth something, but the world doesn't fall apart or blow up when you change your mind. You're on this planet for, you know, 80, 90 years. Mm. Man, I hope you change along the way. Mm. I hope so. Mm. You can change your mind. It's not a bad thing. And so often the scariest things that you change your mind about result in a dramatic and wonderful uh, new chapter in life, don't they? Yeah. 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 And I just, I feel for people who are stuck Mm. because... And and I will say, in my first marriage, which was a huge mistake, at 18, I started messing around with a college professor of mine, ended up marrying him at 19. Wow. I was his third wife. He already, I, I became stepmother to a nine-year-old when I was 18. Wow. That's crazy. No one stopped me from doing it. And I cried down the aisle. Because I knew what a huge mistake it was. Wow. But I would not, 
I, my pride or something was in my way. And I thought to myself, <laughs> you, you got yourself into this mess. You have to live with the repercussions. And it wasn't, I was married 13 years before I got divorced. And no wow. one, people who know me now are like, what? 13 years what? is a long time to wait to make that decision, isn't it? Yeah. It was just, but it was the, I'd already made the decision in my head that I was mm-hmm. going to get out of this. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't willing to let the world know I had made a mistake. Yep. Yep. And so I put a happy face on the whole situation for 13 years. So this is Bloody a do hell. as I say, not as I do. Yeah. How about you? What would be, so yeah, oh. you can change your mind. That's Publicly. brilliant. You've been, your life has been mirroring mine, it seems, at just about every bloody turn. Really? Yeah, wow. because I got married. Well, maybe married. that's That's, that's why, why we, we yeah, why we get along. I did the same thing. I got married too young to a girl who was 19, um, and I walked down the aisle, uh, stood at the end there waiting for her to arrive, thinking the whole time, what would happen if I ran? <laughs> I was right there with you. Who would I be disappointing? Who would I be letting down? Yeah. Would it's would this be an embarrassment I couldn't recover from? The trouble was we're getting married on an island, and I'd flown my family in and her family in for two weeks for a holiday, starting with the wedding. And I wanted to run, and I actually myself I cried that night in the hotel room. I thought I've ruined my life. This woman is a disaster. It's not even a woman; she's a psychopath. She's a disaster. Her mother's a psychopath. You know what have I got myself into? And fortunately, I was able to end it eighteen months later. Um, oh, good. fortunately we had no children, no assets, no house, no nothing. I bought her a car, let her keep anything in the house that she wanted. And that was it. It was done. Cost me 800 bucks. Simple divorce. Second one wasn't so easy. The second one I knew right near the beginning that it was a mistake. I went away with my ex-wife and her brother who, her brother and I are still best friends. He is my best friend. Um, but we went away, um, to the outback in a motorhome and uh, brought along my brother-in-law and his girlfriend. And I was sitting in the pool in Alice Springs in Central Australia with my brother-in-law and I said, Bobby, I cannot hack your sister any longer. Like I just cannot stand it. She nagged and whinged the whole trip and I made it very clear from the beginning, I've always wanted to do this kind of trip. If you don't want to go, then we won't go. But I've wanted to do this trip through Central Australia for decades since I was a kid. Um, so I know you don't like trees and fresh air and stuff very much. You prefer to hang around in plazas and shopping centres and shit. But, you know, if, if you're not enjoying it, try and keep it to yourself as much as you can, you know. She wins the whole way. And I said to him, I can't, I can't be with your sister anymore. She's driving me insane. He goes, I know, man. I know. We've lived, <laughs> we've lived with her for years. We know what she's like, you know. But I stuck around for 11 years, had two kids, <sighs> you know. I mean, I've got two beautiful daughters now because of that. Um, yeah. But it was 11 years of mostly unpleasantness. <laughs> well, and, and you know what? People say, we feel obligated to say, oh, but, you know, I, I got this child out of that relationship. So it's, you know, it was worth it. Bullshit. <laughs> I'm glad I have my daughters. Um, oh, so, oh, I'm so glad I have my son. Yeah, but I, but if I still <laughs> should. It was still a disastrous relationship. Yeah. One one does not justify the other. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. I mean, it, it, I, yeah, I wouldn't give up my son for anything. Who, by the way, his first name is Fritz. So Bad that's income. another reason I'm. That's another funny. Another reason I <laughs> feel at home with you. 
All right, um, so that's our billboard. Yeah. I like. Huh? Oh, no, that was not. I didn't ask you yet what you want on your billboard. Yeah, well, I like your one so much more. <laughs> <laughs> your one is you so want- much more profound. Um, oh, well, mine yeah. is you're only here once, so make sure you live on purpose. In other words, live deliberately. You know, don't get tossed around with the wind um, like so many people do, living by circumstance and uh, by all the superficiality of trying to please others, trying to look impressive, trying to, you know, accumulate status yeah. along the way. You know, now that stuff endures. I kind of think of it as like if someone gives you a present, you know, say it's Christmas, someone gives you a really cool present, you know, say you've told someone that you'd, you'd love to start playing golf and they buy you a set of Callaways and it's super exciting. You know, you couldn't afford to spend two or three grand on the set of clubs, but here you are, you've been blessed with a whole set of Callaways fitted for you and you're off to the races. You can go start playing golf. The thing is, you would just simply go out and enjoy using them. You would be grateful. You would get out in the course whenever you can and you would, you know, clobber the shit out of that little ball with your, you know, fancy set of Callaways and you would enjoy it. You wouldn't analyze it. You wouldn't pull them apart. You wouldn't question why did I get these Callaways. You wouldn't wonder, you know, why they use this metal and not some other metal. You wouldn't analyze the shit out of it and yet people do that with life. They try to find all of the reasons for everything many of which can't be explained, many of which are just pure chance, pure good luck, good fortune, circumstances colliding, just like Earth exists and supports complex life. As Professor Brian Cox says, it was inevitable that Earth would support complex life because it's like lottery. The chances are one in eight million of winning, but someone usually wins. Earth won. It was the right distance from the sun. It had this, it had that and that. So it had to support complex life. And it's like us. We're a one in 400 trillion chance of being born a human because every person prior to us coming had to be fertile fertile, and give birth to a baby, go full term. You know, just think of all the generations that had to go before us, that unbroken chain for you to pop out and for me to pop out. Mm-hmm. It's incredible, you know, fluke of good fortune. So don't analyze the shit out of it. Enjoy it because you're going to be dead soon and you're only going to get one shot at this. So, you know. Well, it's like when people say, you know, if I die, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You really you really think there's a question that that That's like people saying not. when I win the lottery. A lot of people live like that too. Got to buy a ticket. Got to <laughs> buy a ticket, baby. All right. So that was my one. All right, let me ask you another one. How has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? Do you have a favorite failure of yours? The the short answer is I've never failed. Mm. <laughs> But the story behind it is that I was being interviewed on a TV show and the hostess of the show with no warning at all. I mean, I had been invited on this show as a, you know, role model to other women of, you know, how to be your awesome self. Self, yep. And smack dab in the middle of our time together she says well mary i just i have to ask you because you've you've had so many different positions and different roles with different organizations and then you've owned companies and then you've gone into radio and you've just had so many failures how how do you keep going did you reach forward and slap her <laughs> i honest to god peter and my friends that are listening, I, I was like turning my neck to see who was behind me. 
that she was speaking to. I genuinely like did not understand the question. The question. <laughs> and I didn't even have enough. I mean, I'm sure then my jaw just dropped in my lap and it wasn't because I was necessarily offended. I just really, I can say, I did not think that the question applied to me. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I, I've mentioned before, I'm a little ADD. I have a short attention span. I always need to feel very passionate, very excited about what I'm working on. And when something starts to bore me or something more interesting presents itself, I transition out of one thing into something else. I bob and I weave. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes that bobbing and weaving is the most exciting, interesting part of life where, you know, the juicy, messy, gritty stuff shows up as you're trying to move from one thing to another. Mm -hmm. But if something, I don't know, I, I mean, I suppose if I were to, you know, stop doing one thing, it all that went wrong is it no longer served my needs. Mm -hmm. And my needs may be financial, emotional, spiritual, you know, who knows what need was at the top of the pyramid that year, but it wasn't working for me. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a failure. It just isn't what I wanted to do anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I really, I mean, even my first marriage, it was a failure. It wasn't a failure of a marriage. It was just a, man, I was so happy it ended. Yeah. Now, this it, is a really it, good approach. I love it. And it's not just a platitude to say I've never failed. When you approach oh, it the no, way you I described it, it. Yeah, it makes very good practical sense, you know? Yeah. Um, and you may go into something for the money mm -hmm. and the money is there, but you end up leaving it because it sucked your soul out and you're in a place now, you know, I think higher up the, you know, ladder it, um, emotionally where your spirit matters Yeah, and you're not willing to give up your soul. No. And so you leave, you know, yeah, it was successful. But being staying there would have been the failure. That's mm. it. Staying, keeping it going would have been the failure. Mm. I leave at the right time. That's a very good way to explain it, actually. Um, what's his name? Seth Godin in The Dip says that you should quit often and quit early. You yeah. Know, when you know that something is not going to be serving your needs any longer, identify it as fast as you can and quit early uh, yeah. when it's the least expensive, whether that's financially, emotionally, psychologically, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, so that's good. I really like that. Um, yeah. What about you? It just makes see all of, makes all of my answers seem superficial because I'm seeing things in a new way. Every time I talk to you, I see things in a different way. Mine was quite specific. It was that I'd been wanting for ages to create a course on something that I thought was important to me and to others, and it was actually Matthew Kimberley, the guy who wrote the book "Get an Effing Grip." Um, who helped me to get this over the line. I spent a year, um, and it needn't have taken a year, but like anything, you'd let something take as long as you allow for it. And he was in my inbox every week for a year um, asking three questions. And the three questions every week were, what are you going to do that next week? What have you done? Anything else? Those three questions every week. And it didn't matter what I was working on. Um, 
the point was that there was accountability there and he would give me a kick up the ass whenever it was needed and tell me that I had to do what it was, like his book says, what I knew I had to do and I just had somebody else telling me to do it, sometimes with four-letter words thrown in to just drive the message home. So this is a long way of saying that my recent failure was to finally finish that project of creating the Escape the Office course only to launch it just as coronavirus hit and everybody suddenly had to work from home anyway. So the thing that I was teaching people how to get their boss to say yes to work from home, their boss was now telling them, you've got to work from home. (laughs) So yours is a situation where the bob and weave come into play, where what what you had been working toward, all of a sudden the universe sent you, you know, this heck of a curveball. You could still keep the same idea, but bob and weave with it and maybe instead go in the direction of, as I believe you have, helping people adjust to working at home, Mm. you know. Well, it's done two things for me. One is it made me think again about uh, what I want to do with my podcast. And I decided because I'd had this backlog of people asking to come onto the podcast and I got ranked number two in the world um, by... God, I can't remember their name now, a mob that surveys podcasts and stuff and ranks them. And I was number two on working from home. And I thought, you know, maybe I should put a bit more effort into that. And then coincidentally, at the same time, I discovered these guys at Squadcast that actually makes recording podcasts or the quality of the podcast so much better and being able to see each other like this, like we are here. And then with that, after forgetting to press record on two separate interviews, oh. I also bought – worst thing. I also bought one of these Rode, um, Rodecaster Pro uh, sound deck thingies, and it's awesome, if, especially if you remember to turn up the volume on the USB input so you can hear your guest, which took me 45 minutes to remember this morning. <sighs> so I put more effort into the podcast, and I had like interview after interview after interview, and then – I thought I can't keep doing this every week because I'd gone to a fortnightly thing because I got a job and I got freelance clients and stuff and I got to spend time with my family and, you know, have a shower sometimes. So I've gone back to, for the time being, to fortnightly, but it made me focus more on that and I love it. And some of the people I've met that I've interviewed have been awesome. And, you know, the thing is, if I just said to these people, uh, Justin, can I chew your ear for an hour and get your advice on, you know, startups and how you do this and do that, he would have said, piss off, who are you? But, hey, do you want to come on the podcast and talk about your software? Yeah. <laughs> Different story. Well, so and that's also been a working, at, working, the whole topic of working from home is such a hot topic. You could talk mm. to Conan O'Brien about what it's like to, you know, work from home. Yeah, that's All true. All of a sudden it's a new, because everybody wants to tell their stories of what it's like working from home instead of the exciting celebrity job they normally have. Mm, mm, yeah, there's a lot of people I could approach to talk. Yeah, I'm not surprised that you jumped up in mm. the rankings. That makes perfect sense to me because people are Googling, you know, yeah. they work from home. Exactly. There, well, I, it's funny, you know, I had a look at Google Analytics the other day to see since the beginning of time what my most popular podca- uh, blog post was. And it was one of the most recent ones on the top five things you need to do to work effectively from home. So all the there you great go. stuff that I wrote earlier, yeah, that's way down the list. <sighs> it's the recent thing on that. So, you know, yeah. that that was one thing. The other thing was, as you mentioned, um, I have kind of pivoted a bit and I have put together a course which is almost finished 
called the Remote Work Academy, which is about, you know, the other five things. I mean, the first thing was convince your boss to let you work from home because that's number one. If you can't do that, it's yeah. very hard to do the other stuff. But now that a lot of people are, the next things were, you know, what tools do you use? How do you set up your office? How do you structure your day so you don't become a workaholic only at home? You know, how do you pursue other opportunities like freelancing, consulting, that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. now that you've freed up some time and, and then how do you make sure that you do all this in the right way to make it count so it can actually change your life for the long term and not just be some wonderful diversion until you get called back to the office. And by the way, I think a lot of people are going to get called back eventually and when they do, then my first course, Escape the Office, will become relevant again. It's like you've had a yes. taste. You really, I know a lot of you don't want to go back to the office. So, um, you know, Escape well, the Office, that'll help. Well, and I would like to, if, if you don't mind, jump kind of back to some of the, there was a question that you had asked me or that you were going to ask me that's not on Tim's list, but to talk about, because I, I've done a lot of, I've done many years of working at home and I started a you know program through our chamber for people who are working yeah, that's at home right. you to did. reconnect. I, I'm really interested in, <laughs> I'm interested in hearing from you. Maybe you've talked about this so much on your own show that it would just be a repeat, but kind of thoughts of where, where the world is going in terms of working from home. And it's interesting for me. I, I can I just say something that I uh, have that's on my mind without you answering me that. Yeah. Question? That's like asking me if you could ask me a question. I didn't say those words. No, I did not didn't. say those words. But you're right; the intent was the same. Well, I'm kind of taking a little. I'm taking your host ing duties away. Uh, Don't I, care. take over. So, as someone who works from home, and I, I think that there are two kinds of people. There are people who totally dig this, and there are people who do not, and that they they. Some are going to run back to that office. They are going to be so happy to be in the mix and have water cooler time. You're and right. um, they can't wait to get back. This big experiment is also going to lead to people who thought they could never work at home. And here they are in their pajamas at three o'clock in the afternoon saying, oh, my God, I haven't had a shower since Tuesday. <laughs> and they love this. Yeah. And they're so much more productive. I really think employers in industries and professions where it it works either way, they are going to have to start negotiating with especially new employees what work model they prefer. Yes. And at least offering a hybrid type situation of where there are times you're at home, there are times you have to be in the office. But I do think, I mean, it's not going to be like the people who work in the office are ever going to be told you can't come here anymore unless they go entirely remote. Mm-hmm. Do you, so I'm, do you think there will be businesses that will say, oh, we can save a lot of Absolutely. On real estate? Mm. Yeah. Well, I've spoken to a few people who are in a position to know this and, um, absolutely that's, that's going to be happening. And there will be companies now that will be starting, uh, that had the intention of, you know, renting office space and setting up people um, from different locations in the one spot that will abandon that completely because, um, I mean, take, for example, the company I've worked with for 23 years. They've got about 120 employees 
and they have discovered <clears throat> that they can run very effectively with five people in an office. All the rest can do their jobs just as well without coming to the office. Um, and there will be a lot of other companies like that. And I think not only that, I think this will have the, microf- the, the microwave effect too that um, once people you know, got a microwave oven and they could heat something up in two minutes, <clears throat> waiting 30 minutes was just not a thing anymore. Why should I wait 30 minutes? I can do it in two. Yeah, it'll be rubbery, but it'll be hot. And I think this is going to have the same impact that people will have experienced working from home and all the freedoms that that includes, no commuting, don't have to put on makeup, don't have to shower every day if you don't want to, and yet they still get stuff done and they're less stressed. They can play loud music, they can fart whenever they want. People aren't going to want to give that up. Some will need to go back, like you said, because they miss the camaraderie or they live in a home which is um, which has tension and they need to get away from their partner. They need to get away from their environment. I know that there are people who are, you know, <clears throat> struggling with an abusive partner that they're now having to work with every day, you know. There will yeah. be people who don't want to work from home but for a lot of professionals who have their home in order, they're not going to want to go back. And they are going to be, if they're forced to go back, they're going to be looking to work elsewhere. Plus a lot of people are moving out to rural areas now. Um, providing they've got decent internet and someone makes decent coffee, they're moving. They can have, you know, 40 hectares of land and kangaroos and beautiful gum trees, a view of the ocean, you know, for half what they're paying to rent a shitbox, you know, somewhere in the city or buy a, you know, crappy little unit in the city. I mean, my ex-wife's two-bedroom house on 400 square metres just got valued at $1.5 million. And it's a puny little place. It was a concrete tilt-up built for um, widows of people who'd been in um, armed conflict. So it was a very simple, basic place. She did a light renovation on it. But still, a two-bedroom, single-storey house with a carport for $1.5 bucks. that's going to get bulldozed because she's going to build something new on it, you know? And you yeah. can go and you can have a palatial place out in the country for, you know, a third of that, a quarter of that. So a lot of people are doing that. I've been reading everywhere. Oh, yeah. They're doing it. They're all pissing off, raising their kids with fresh air and, you know, grass instead of, you know, concretes and bag snatchers. Imagine that. Mm. Well, and I think the next new frontier will be employers saying um, when you work. It's not going to be where. It's Mm going to be when. Mm -hmm. It's going to be. No, between nine and five, I want you available at any given time by whichever means of communication we're all using as a team. You need to be on the clock from eight to five. Mm-hmm. Because now that for people who have realized, as you have enjoyed for all these years, Peter, the idea of, oh, I can spend time with my kids. I can, you know, go drive 200 kilometers and mm-hmm. clear my mind. Um uh, that's going to be the next thing, the next trust exercise for employers is let them work when they want. Yeah, I agree because um, I've always railed against attendance as a measure of productivity because they do not equal the same thing. If anything, when you're in an office, you're usually less productive. Um, And, you know, attendance is right up there with ass kissing. It has very little tangible, measurable value. Um, So I think that people are going to be, I mean, I look at companies like Basecamp, for example, where their entire workforce is remote, and they don't tell their staff when they have to be working. They say, look, we've got 
if we've got a time difference, we need a crossover period of five hours in the day, four hours in the day where we can converse at a reasonable time so that we're not up at 11 o'clock at night talking to each other. But the rest, you know, do it however you want because all they care about is the outcomes, the projects, you know. Did yep. you get that project out? You know, was it of a high standard? You know, because most yeah, deadlines well, are arbitrary, aren't they? There's like, okay, let's throw yeah. a date in the air or let's throw how many. It's like packing for a holiday. You've got a big-ass suitcase. Chances are you're going to fill it. If you've got a smaller suitcase, you'll fill that. If you've got a bigger one, you'll fill that, yeah. you know. And it's the same yeah. with hours in the day. You, most people, they reckon, spend what? Work two hours out of an eight-hour day productively because the rest of it's just bullshit. Yeah, you're so right. Mm. You are so right. Well, and this could be also where the Experience 50 crowd really starts to cash in (laughs) on their experience because we work smarter, not harder or longer. Mm -hmm. And if if it really is a question of, well, I just want to be sure your project is done. We don't have to work as long unless mm. I guess as long as we understand our technology, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. for those who are stumbling. Um, yeah. Well, I can get more done in a day than a lot of my colleagues manage to do in a week, you know, and I know this for a fact because I've been doing it for 23 years and I've seen um, how long they take to arrive at an outcome with a project versus me getting the green light and I'm yeah. it out in a day, you know. Yeah. Because I don't have all that I, shop talk. Hey, if if you still if you give people the same amount of money just to get the work done, people are going to do it mm. more efficiently and faster, and they're going to put out a better product because they want to continue working under those arrangements. Exactly, and you give them the freedom to be happy and actually have a life, and they reward you with their loyalty and yeah. with a higher standard of work. Like you said, I agree. Yeah, um, I'm going to ask you. I think. One more question, and then I think we better wrap it up because we've been talking for two hours. Yeah, I need hours. to wrap it up. I need to wrap up. Yeah, so. i got to do what, some what other work. We, all right. <laughs> this is my last oh, question. Your day you. is starting. My day is ending. Oh, that's right. So it's one o'clock for you, long time ago. Something like that. Yeah, okay. All right. If you knew that you had a decade left to live, what legacy would you like to leave behind? What will your kids and grandkids consider to be your little dent in the universe? Love the question. And I have such a sense of calm in every aspect of my life because I don't need another five or 10 years to secure the checking of that box. I've, I've done it. I've done it, Peter. For me, it's really important that my legacy is in the impact I've had on my children so that they are equipped to go have beautiful, fabulous lives for themselves, but that they also understand their responsibilities to their fellow man and the common good. And I have had that magical moment more than once with both of my children where they have thanked me for making them good people. Yeah, that's the ultimate legacy. We are so alike. Yeah, that's I it. Totally I totally agree I with don't all need of that. anything else. I don't need anything else. And um, a lot of it, with my daughter, it's really come out in the COVID thing. And the battles that she is watching her 
friends have with their parents right now. Okay. And um, that these kids are embarrassed by their parents' views on the world. And she just sent me the most beautiful note for how much she appreciated never putting her in that position where she was embarrassed. Mm, that's something, isn't my it? My views. And she's been sharing my, just recently, been sharing my podcast on her Instagram. You know, just, mm-hmm. it's been really awesome. And my my son said something to me within the last six months. We were talking about a serious topic in his world. And he said, no, mom, back, just hold on, hold on. <laughs> I'm just, he said, I'm just going to tell you that. Whatever you're about to suggest, I am going to give great weight to in making this decision. How old is he? 34. Okay. okay. So please be sure that what you're going to tell me is that you've thought this through. Okay. And it has changed the way I talk to myself. (laughs) 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 <laughs> that disclaimer we were talking about earlier, huh? <laughs> well, when we're talking about big life decisions, <laughs> I need to understand that he really pays attention pays to what attention you say. to what I say, and I better be careful. Mm, mm. But what um, a wonderful I, position to be in, where your kids do pay so much attention to what you say that you have that responsibility. Because so many parents, they feel like they're shouting into the ether. Oh, I adore my children's brains. Mm. I really do. I I mean, I have very cerebral uh, relationships with Mm -hmm. my children on big, big topics. Mm. You know, I I can, I can be in my car driving, you know, six hours and I'll call my son and we'll talk the whole way there. And we're talking all about philosophy and art and color. And do you know what I'm just... Yes, I know what you mean. I very rarely have a superficial conversation with my daughters in the car for very long. Almost inevitably, it uh, descends into something far deeper and existential. Um, And I just love having those conversations with the girls and hearing how they perceive things. Um, I remember years ago, there was a guy who I went to a couple of his seminars, a big, loud guy called Charlie Tremendous Jones. It's been dead now a long time, but he was funny, you know, double-breasted suit, red tie, very loud voice. Said the same spiel at every one of his speeches because I've heard him a few times. But he said to his son when he was young, he said, all right, son, you want a car when you turn 18? Yes, Dad. Okay, well, um, I'm gonna, not going to buy you one. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to read a book, and for every book, you're going to give me a book report. And every book report, 20 bucks goes in the car fund. Uh, if you read... Um, like a bum, you're going to drive like a bum. And so his son took I him up on the challenge. I love that. Yeah. I love that. He said, I get to select the books and you need to give me a book report on them. <clears throat> so he did that and he said years later when he went off and he got deployed in Iraq, I think it was, or somewhere, um, he would write his dad these most beautiful letters. And he said in these letters I could see where he got his seed thought, where he developed that belief. Um, where he came to that thought, you know, and it was the most beautiful thing to witness that it had filtered through to him 
unbeknownst to him at the time because, you know, teenagers um, often won't clue you in to how much they're actually paying attention. But he was paying attention and it became the fabric of what he believed and how he behaved. And I've seen this in my daughters now. You know, they, they echo stuff back to me. And when they say to you, you know, I learned that from you, Dad, and you can see they truly believe it, that's the ultimate legacy, isn't it? I mean, who needs a big shiny building or, you know, some big business with your name in neon? Don't need yeah. that. Yeah. Just your well, kids. When my, best, when my best friend died and my my son kind of surprised me by coming home for the funeral. And it wasn't a convenient thing for him to do. And he said, Mom, I'm here because I remember you telling me that you don't go to the funeral because of your relationship to the person in the casket. You go because of your relationship to the people attending Ah, the funeral. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember saying that. But that's why he was there is because it was my best friend. Mm. And he it was he did the right thing. I mm. needed him there. Yeah. He didn't need to be there. I needed him there. Mm-hmm. And it's these little, you know, I just know, Peter, you've said things to your kids that you don't even remember. No, that's and right. It's yeah. gonna end up guiding them through their life. And, you know, the whole butterfly effect of helping other people. And that's our legacy. Yeah, absolutely. It is the ultimate legacy. I really wonder how a person can feel that they have fully lived their life if they've never had a kid, if they've made a choice to never have a kid. I really, really wonder. I mean, I guess it's just you don't know what you don't know. You know, my wife was very late to having a child. Um, You know, she was always working her ass off. Uh, in business and very ambitious, very commercially minded, typically Chinese, you know. And um, eventually she got it into her head when she saw how I was with the girls that maybe this was something that she wanted. And I'd reached a point where I didn't want any more kids. I was thinking, no, I'm just finally, you know, free of that. We can start to travel and do other stuff. I don't want another one. And she spent three years very slowly coercing me into the idea of having another one. And thank God we did because little Tommy, you know, now I've got my son. We've got dirt bikes. We've got golf clubs together. You know, we've got camping trips we're, you know, we're doing and all sorts of stuff and we have our own in-jokes and everything and it is awesome. Yeah. Um, but now that she has Tommy, she realises what she'd missed out on all these years and she absolutely adores him. But I, I did the same thing. Didn't want any more kids. Was so glad I was done. I got, was divorced. I was going to do my, you know, raise my teenager and then... Mm-hmm. Off I was going to go, and this guy, this damn guy <laughs> who, you know, the younger man hadn't had his family yet, and I told him, sorry, not happening. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just not happening. How do you weigh you down? He, it all, it happened in a flash. Mm-hmm. It was, he came along we were just dating i mean seriously dating yeah. but we were taking my son trick or treating and just watching him walk my son by the hand up to a house for halloween mm. and all of a sudden it switched from i don't want a baby to i need to have that man's baby 
I want to give him his baby. It was just, that's what it was all about. It had, no, I mean, I would be the host and, and the mother, but mm-hmm. it wasn't my need. It was because I loved you needed him to do so that for him. much. Yeah. I needed to do it. And yeah. um, it would be an expression of love. Yeah. And and I tell pe- young people who say, I don't think I want to have kids. It's like, all right, but consider that you may fall in love with someone and need to have a child with them mm. to fully express your love. It could happen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I hear rustling. When um, that's my husband, uh, he's looking in here like, "What the hell are you doing?" Still talking after all this time. <laughs> yeah. When um, all right, we'll wrap it up in a sec. When I told my parents um that my wife wanted to have a kid, and um, I wasn't, you know, really wanting to. My mum said, "Well, you know, Pete, you, you know, you are getting older now, and it's a big responsibility and all that." So that was her approach. I asked my dad and he said, well, of course you've got to say yes. She's a wonderful woman. Why would you deny her that? Of course you're going to have to have mm-hmm. another kid if that's what she wants. Absolutely. She's a wonderful woman. Yes, do it. <laughs> I, so. like, I, I think it's the same thing. Mm. It's an expression of love. Yeah. Well, this has been a record conversation. There's no doubt about it. Two hours and 43 minutes. God, why would anybody want to listen to us for two hours and 43 minutes? <laughs> I hope there's value I hope here. someone, well, no one's going to listen. You're going to edit this down. I'm, no, I'm, I'm going to leave it. I want it to be long. Oh, I want this stop to, it. I want this to be my really? longest podcast episode ever. Well, Tim Ferriss does three-hour ones. Otherwise, I'm going to have to spend forever wow. editing. Yeah, I guess I'll edit a bit. Oh, I would think so. Mm. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm taking that all back. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'm going to be your longest podcast yeah. guest. I we, We're survivors. Yeah, kind of. I don't see why you, you can't know? hold the record. I mean, I don't think I'm ever going to do more than this. Um, and somebody might have to drive into state, and they want to listen to a pair of midlifers ramble for two hours Here and forty five minutes. Well, but, but you know, we're so good looking. We're the best looking podcasters ever, mm-hmm. especially over fifty. Yeah, um, with glasses and blonde hair. All that. Well, they don't know. Me. We could, you know, for them, for those listening to this podcast, I could be. I could tell you I'm in an evening gown with a tiara. Mm-hmm. And you are. And, I'm and, glad you wore and that. And I am. <laughs> I know. Now, your bathrobe is a little Tony Soprano, to tell you the truth. And right? it has been slipping while we've been sitting, but that's just my gut pushing it out. <laughs> I've got to learn to suck it in. Jeez, what is that on my T-shirt? Anyway. All right, Mary, uh, <laughs> you know I love chatting with you. And uh, I kind of suspected we were going to go. A long time. I didn't know it was going to be two hours and 45 minutes, but I thought we might crack two hours. But that just proves that it's nice hanging out with you. And I wish we could just get pissed together one day. That might be fun. I know. Well, I know. I'm sure our spouses would enjoy each other. We can like meet halfway in the middle of the Pacific. Maybe Bora Bora or. Mm. That'd be awesome. That would be cool. You know, just to do that and just say, yeah, yeah, I flew to Bora Bora to meet up with this woman that I've spoken to on her podcast (laughs) and my podcast a couple of times. And what? And that's it? Yeah. Isn't that enough? <laughs> you know you're going to be dead a long time, don't you? What other excuse do you need to go to Bora Bora? There you go. Yeah. There you go. Right. Well, this is great. And I, you know, I know that your listeners adore you and they learn so much. You're very, you're a generous spirit. You 
really give of yourself to your listeners. And I love that you're so willing to share, you know, the shit that's going on in your life and what you've learned from it. Cause some people don't pay attention to their own lives so well. <laughs> so they see themselves when you share your stories. Thanks, Mary. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. It's no wonder I like you so much. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we're going to wrap this up because we're probably both busting for a piss. I know I am. Um, you're going to find the uh, episode that goes along with this, the blog post that goes with this episode over at officeanywhere.co slash triple one. And you're also going to find some goodies there um, that'll lead you into Mary's ecosystem, which once you're in will be hard to extricate yourself because uh, Mary is pretty damn unique in this world. And if you like any of the stuff that I talk about, I know that you're going to love what Mary does. So um, until next time we chat, Here's to working and living on your terms. Thanks for joining us, Mary. It has been a delight. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed this uh, marathon session with me and Mary Rogers. Um, Hopefully you're on a long drive somewhere and it was kind of like having a couple of old crusty friends with you in the back seat chatting away and keeping you entertained. Before we go, I just want to uh, pass along two things to you, or a few things actually. First of all, Mary talked about uh, how she likes to do journaling in the morning or writing to her imaginary friend. And it sounds kind of woo-woo and a bit quirky when you think about it, but I've actually just had a look at the uh, the download, which is offering all uh, listeners to this episode, and you'll find a link to it um, at officeanywhere.co slash triple one. And it's actually very, very cleverly thought out. In fact, I'm even thinking of getting an imaginary friend myself and starting this practice uh, tomorrow. It's so clever. So I won't tell you any more about it other than to make sure you check out the show notes and um, follow the link to uh, to Mary's site to get yourself a copy of that because it's very, very good. Uh, another thing I wanted to pass on was actually a testimonial from one of uh, Mary's clients. Mary does mentoring with midlifers and I think this testimonial from Tana really uh, sort of sums up what Mary is like and the kind of service that she delivers. It says, it took me a few months to finally get up the nerve to contact Mary. To be specific, I turned to her the week I was facing the first layoff in my life, along with doubts on how to move forward with a startup business that I've nurtured along for a while, added to the topsy-turvy experience of being a 50-something, divorced, empty nester, all in the middle of the COVID-19 event. I was a jumbled mess of emotion, confusion and fear. My discussion with Mary was like having a heart-to-heart conversation with a dear friend. She met me with great care, compassion, humour and wisdom as she listened to every word I said. Mary helped me to dissect my issues, find the blessings and then challenged me to make some hard decisions. She used common sense along with her extensive business expertise to quickly sum up the situation. Then she made several great suggestions on how I might most effectively proceed. The best thing about this experience was the safe environment Mary established in order for me to honestly share deep concerns about an uncertain future. Thank you, Mary, for the extraordinary care and thoughtfulness you offered. I was able to end the conversation with a new perspective, some action items, and a new friend. If you're considering a mentoring session with Mary, take it from me. It is a very good investment. I think that really sums up Mary's personality and her skill set very, very nicely. And so the final thing I want to say is, if you don't already have a copy of my Work Anywhere trial guide, it's not just about working remotely. Um, It's about the six steps that I believe you need to go through in order to work and live on your terms. You can get a free copy over at officeanywhere.co on pretty much any of the pages, but you'll also find uh, a link to it uh, at the bottom of the post for this episode at officeanywhere.co slash triple one. 
And uh, thanks for hanging out with us today. It was a long session, I know, and I'll chat to you again very soon. See you later. Bye-bye.